Good morning. Welcome to Wake Up Carolina. Wednesday morning, February 7, 843-661-0937. Good morning, Josh. Good morning. Good morning, Royal Rev of Radio. Good morning. It's a good day. We've actually got 16-ounce Celsius, and they're orange sickle flavors. Now, normally, I would be opposed to an orange sickle flavor, but the Clemson Tigers did my beloved Gamecocks a favor last night by going to Chapel Hill and upsetting the bad boys' beloved Tar Heels. That's a big win, not just for Clemson, but for South Carolina as as well. Maybe we're both basketball schools now. <laughs> I mean, maybe maybe the Gamecocks and Tigers are, um, well, let me not maybe. say Clemson has seen their better days. Clemson has seen good days in football uh, other than Spurrier. The Gamecocks are waiting on good days in football. But um, I'll tell you the advantage of basketball. You ready, Rev? You and I were talking yesterday. My daughter went to the game yesterday. They're offering some deal with tickets, and it's a wide-out game. And mm-hmm. she got there at the Kentucky game. She just moseys in like she's, you know, Miss whoever she is. And they put her in like the second or last row of the upper deck. And she <laughs> got there late. And all of a sudden, well, I mean, you know, we were winning. And everybody loves to be a part of a winner. So they're winning. Um, I told her last night or yesterday afternoon, I said, you go to the basketball game? We're leaving now. I mean, it's at school's out. We're leaving now. We're yeah. not waiting like we did uh, so she sure. got to the lower bowl, and it, but it's not an endeavor. I mean, I can't imagine. I've always said about Gamecock football, living where I live, even when it sucked, and it sucked a lot. It was only an hour and ten minutes from my house to Williams Bryce. Clemson is a road trip. I mean, it's it's a long excursion, takes a long time um, to get there. Now, now it's worth it. You bleed orange. You love the Tigers. It's a weekend. It's a it's a part of your your life. It's um it's a family gathering place, but it's still an endeavor. Whether you're a Gamecock or a Tiger fan, you make that commitment to seven Saturdays a year, and it's tailgating and it's drinking too much and it's you know trying to find a hotel room and it's getting out of a parking lot at uh, eleven thirty at night. And you finally get to the um to Assembly Street at one o'clock in the morning. I mean everybody knows what I'm talking about. Oh yeah, basketball's not an endeavor. No. I mean, you kind of go to the arena. You can you work all the, day. Yeah, you work all day, take off, get to Columbia. or I don't want Clemson to be a little bit different than that. But you know what I'm saying. Yep. I mean, it's not an all-day ordeal. It's easier. It's easier to go to a basketball game. Um, and, I mean, when you're winning, it's it's pretty fun. So, congratulations last night to Clemson. A bigger win than my beloved Gamecocks had at um, Colonial Life Arena against Ole Miss. Kind of a tale of two halves of the Gamecocks. I actually watched. Every minute of the game. I mean, I did. I'm, I'm a little bit ashamed of myself, but I watched every minute of a, of a basketball, a men's basketball game. Not didn't say women's, right. ba- a don't, men's basketball. Yeah, don't misunderstand. Real basketball I watched from start to finish. And they looked like world beaters in the first half. I mean, they lit it up. In the second half, they struggled. I mean, they, they really had, I don't know what happened. Well, I mean, I do know what happened. They made every three-point shot they took in the first half. They didn't make any. In the second half, what's the old saying? You live by the sword, die by the sword. They built this team around three-point shooting proficiency, and they I mean, they killed it. The, the commentators on TV even made the comment when they were hitting so many in the first half, they said, you know, that, that can sometimes come back to bite you. It normally does. Yep. I mean, there's a reason that the majority of college basketball teams shoot about 30% from three-point. And when you shoot 55% of the first half, you got to believe it's a little bit like a golfer. Um if you shoot, I mean, if you're a ten handicap and you shoot one under par on the back, one under par on the front nine, you know what you'll probably shoot on the back nine, nine over par. <laughs> <laughs> if you honestly 
um, keep the score. But anyway, congratulations to Clemson. Big win in Chapel Hill. I think it's the second ever time they beat North Carolina, one of the blue bloods in college basketball um, up there. And not only did it, it is it a big win for Clemson, it, it kind of helps the Gamecocks net rating. And that's going to be interesting throughout this season because Clemson is a quality loss to South Carolina. South Carolina is a quality win for Clemson. So with the weirdest way imaginable, you're kind of pulling for one another. And I will say this, it's not as hard to wish good luck to Clemson in basketball as it is at football. And I think they feel about the same. I'm not saying they're pulling for the Gamecocks, but but it's kind of like, ah, oh, it's basketball. Who, you know, and it kind of does help us in our net ratings. I mean, every time South Carolina beats a Tennessee or Kentucky, I mean, that win we have over them looks even more uh, like a big deal. So anyway, congratulations to both Clemson and South Carolina. Now let's move on. Now that we've got men's basketball out of the way, yesterday there was one of the first and early hearings on the NIL bill that is in the state house in Columbia. Oh. Um, I mean, I, yeah, I had somebody text me yesterday afternoon irate about some of the testimony given, some of the comments made by a certain legislator I'll leave unnamed. I don't want to be uh, that guy who singles out certain legislators who take certain stances and offer up certain opinions. But it's obvious to me that Clemson and South Carolina are trying to gain control of the collectives. Um, so, so here's my take, and I'll, I'll be brief, Josh. Here's my take. So we've agreed, or I think we've agreed, that the NCAA is not some mystical monolith. I mean, they're not some wizard behind a wall. I mean, it's, a, it's the enforcement arm of the member institutions, right? I mean, the NCAA is the National Collegiate Athletic Association comprised of the member institutions. So it's not like the NCAA goes rogue and does their own things. I mean, they take their marching orders from the member institutions. They just absolutely screwed up one of the great games in the history of mankind, college football. I mean, they screwed it up. They screwed up college athletics, really, and it's about the money. Money's the answer. Now, what's the questions? The universities were raking in enormous amounts of money. I mean, I preached this sermon before, and the kid was getting very little commiserate value to the enormous amount of revenue uh, they're raking in. So along comes a lawsuit. Along comes a scolding decision from the Supreme Court that basically, I mean, if you go and read Alito and Kavanaugh, and I've said this before, if you go back and read Alito and Kavanaugh's opinion, they basically said, you guys have been running a criminal enterprise. I mean, non-compensated athletic performance is part of the student learning experience. I mean, that's in their bylaws. And that's, once again, not a mystical or magical monolith. That is the enforcement arm of the member institutions. The NCAA's bylaws didn't magically appear uh, like the Ten Commandments. I mean, they, they were instituted by the schools. So the schools knew that they were abusing the kid. They knew that they were raking in billions of dollars as a, real, as a result of the productivity of the college football player. And I'm talking about basketball and football in particular. Somebody said it's all football. Well, I mean, it's all football in, except at Kentucky, except in North Carolina and Duke, except at UConn, except at UCLA, I mean, they're, Kansas. I mean, there's they're some, they're some places that are very, their basketball programs are very lucrative. Um, March Madness, unbelievably lucrative, an amazing amount of money. We could argue, we did last week, when did college athletics change and when did money become the central focus? Uh, 
March Madness is a good answer. I'm not saying it's the right answer, but it's a real good answer. But anyway, um, so yesterday in some of the testimony, I think Beamer and Dabo were there. I mean, I saw a picture of them sitting side by side, front row at the subcommittee hearing. And, you know, they testified, basically both said that it's kind of the wild, wild west. We need more control. Um, we don't know what some of these collectives are doing, what they aren't doing. So we need to have this thing kind of in control. So IPTA and the Gamecock Club are 501c3s. They would be that layer of insulation from the university to the athlete. In other words, that would that may for a little while help you with collective bargaining, help you with um, the normal relationship an employer has with an employee. But that's kind of the, it's a little bit like, look, like I, I'm putting my, my, my business in my wife's name in, in case somebody sues me. You know what I mean? They can't get to that. I mean, there's this, Courts sometimes sometimes say okay. Sometimes they say it's pretty obvious what you were trying to do, so it's not okay. I still believe that eventually it's inevitable that the kid becomes an employee of the university. I mean, I think eventually somebody will sue for for collective bargaining or the right to organize, and that's where we'll end up. But in the interim, it seems to me that the the schools that created the problem now want to be in charge of the new model. In other words, we've used the collectives for as long as we need to. I mean, we had a problem on our hand. We, 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 we screwed it up by allowing non-compensated athletic performance to be a part of the student learning experience as part of our bylaws. And once again, the NCAA is not separate of the schools. The NCAA is the schools. The NCAA, the words I came, the NCAA, not a mystical monolith. Somewhere out there in the ether that says, hey, no matter what them schools say, we'll do what we want to do here. No, the NCAA does what the schools say do. And the NCAA said, um, we're not paying the kids. They lose the lawsuit. And now all of a sudden, with, with all due respect to Dabo and Shane, I don't understand. I mean, I guess they're doing what they're told to do. I mean, the universities have probably lobbied. Well, probably. The universities have lobbied members of the General Assembly to give them back control of the um, of the bargaining between the football player, the coach, the football player, and uh, whatever his contract may or may not be. And I'm just thinking to myself, so are we that moronic? I mean, are we going to give control? The NCAA ruined the game, created this enormous sea change, and all of a sudden now after sea change, post-collective, post-people making enormous contributions, they want control back. I mean, they want to be back in charge. We need to be in charge of the you know, the pay structure. We need to be in charge of, well, I mean, then make them employees. I mean, if you want to be in charge, just fall on the sword and say, hey, we screwed it up for long enough. It's time the kids employ the university. You know, we offer health care, time off, what a pension, whatever, whatever, whatever. I mean, next thing you know, you got a, um, a quarterback at Clemson participating in the state retirement plan. I mean, if you want control, then let's take control, but they don't want all the control. They want to be in control of the money flow that goes to Ipte and the Gamecock Club so they can maintain that layer of separation, but they they, they don't want the, the Garnet Trust or the collectives at Clemson saying, hey, we're negotiating with a kid. And, and I just, for the life of me, I don't understand why we would allow that sort of transaction to be run by bureaucrats. Because that's just going to end up being in control. I mean, it's going to be a bureaucrat at the Gamecock Club or a bureaucrat at Ipte that decides this kid's worth this much, that kid is worth another amount. Now, the only way I'll go along with that, and who am I? The only way I'd be supportive of that is if the the universities took their own money. 
if they took the television revenue that the SEC and ACC give Clemson and South Carolina and, and kind of partially negotiated under those terms and circumstances. But yesterday, to me, was a bad day because the General Assembly seems to be more aligned. And I know what happens. I mean, I've been there, guys. I mean, the, the University of South Carolina Clemson sent their lobbyists, sent their big wigs to the state house. They sat down with some of the committee chairs, and they said, hey, here's the way we need this thing to go down, and there's some season tickets waiting on you. You know, we got that double-decker suite on the 50-yard line with um, lobster and, you know, ribeye steak and all that. I mean, that's just the way it works, guys. <laughs> Never been to the one at Death Valley, but but I'm sure they've got one. There's a trustee box with ample resources, and, you know, if you're chairing that committee, a prominent member of that committee, you'll never have to – I mean, I know there are ethics rules and things like that, but there's a lot of ways to to work around a, a guest of the president, guest of the board. And it's just – I don't know. It just it makes me nauseous to know that the people who destroyed the fundamental model and would not address the fact that the kids were generating enormous amounts of revenue but weren't being compensated in any way, shape – well, I mean, they're getting the value of, a, uh, of an education – the majority of football players aren't majoring in pre-med or biology or um, I don't know. My, my daughter hadn't bumped into many at the Darlamore School of Business in some of her finance classes. I've asked her, I said, any football players in your class? Ooh. Any basketball players in your class? I think there's one girl basketball player. Um, there are some tennis players, a couple of golfers in my um, in my finance classes. So anyway, it, that's just my rant for the morning. But is there um, anybody advocating for another way? I mean, obviously the universities have I don't tre- know tremendous, there is another way. A tremendous lobbying power, but I mean, more a, a way more closer to the way you've advocated. Well, I mean, I, where where the where the legislature sets up the rules so the money can flow through to a collective. Is is there somebody advocating for a different position? No, or, or no, no, no. So no, basically, no. the universities, well, the, co- the collectives don't have lobbyists. I mean, the, here's what the collective did. You ready? To me, the collectives are the example of the most loyal fans those two universities have. There was a major problem in college football. You had to figure out a way to get money to athletes, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're going to the highest bidder. So the collectives were created out of thin air. They, they, they called the top 100 donors of Clemson and South Carolina and said, hey, the, the game has changed. I mean, the game is – I know you've been generous to the university. Clemson's got X number of dollars from donors. The Gamecocks have got X number of dollars from donors. But this is a new day, and we're asking you to make another contribution to another entity that is not affiliated or associated with the university, and we need it now. We need it now. What's the budget? I mean, our budget's 5 or $6 or $7 million. I don't know if you saw this or not, but uh, University of Missouri got an anonymous donation a couple of days back, $62 million anonymous donation – Fifty million going to stadium upgrades. Twelve million going to the collective. Twelve million to fund NIL. I mean, that's twice the budget of Clemson and South Carolina. No, there's nobody. There's not a single person in Columbia today advocating for the continuation of collectives. It's all about the Gamecock Club maintaining or taking control and IPTA taking control, and the universities, the ones that blew the game up to begin with. Or the ones that now will have the majority of control and give them long enough, guys, they'll screw it up. I mean, I'll assure you with that. Bureaucrats are not good at running things, especially things that require certain attributes of a free market. Take a break. Back in a few.
843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Rick in Sumter listening to WDXY. Good morning. Hey, good morning. Good morning, sir. Um, listen, this might have been the spur of the conversation. I tuned in a little bit late, but it came across my news feed, news feed yesterday. I think Dartmouth Ivy League school um, is actually trying to unionize their football team for collective bargaining. And I just found it interesting. You know, it's not the Washingtons, Alabama, Carolina, or Clemson. The smaller schools that nobody's trying to decimate their roster would be the first to start something like this. That's kind of interesting. I hadn't read that, Rick. What? Where did you read that? Because I'd, I'd like to see what the specifics are. Um, I think it was just one of those flash across the news break. Okay, thing. gotcha, gotcha. And, you know, a small little article. But, yeah, I think um, after seeing what happened at the University of Washington, you know, I can see that happening. But I can see it happening with the smaller schools that want equitable distribution and all that kind of stuff would be the ones that would really be interested in unionizing. The bigger schools would probably, with the big stars, would probably find that to be too restrictive, you know, on their yep, yep. unrestricted free agency. Rick, what about, let, let me play out a hypothetical. You, you're kind of a thinker. What if Clemson and South Carolina wanted to do that, but we remain a right-to-work state? I mean, does the government begin working against the universities and trying to organize, or are the players trying to organize? I mean, labor unions aren't forbidden here. But but they're you know what I mean they're they're, they're frowned upon so to speak right there, so well, I, there's no collective bargaining which is the whole correct. reason for a union so 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 I wonder and, what would happen in some of the states that are more favorable to unions and some of the states that are less favorable to unions that'd be interesting well the favorable union states it would be poison for a big star for a five star recruit to go there because he would get hit by the Bernie Sanders idea of equity. Correct. you got to split your money with a third stringer. And a state like South Carolina, it would actually be protective, but they would remain uh, mid-tier. And wanted to bring one other thing. My dad was a pretty good football player, and that was his job in the Air Force. He played football because all the bases had big teams. And one of his prized possessions, and this was 1959, was a letter from Vince Lombardi inviting him for a tryout with the Packers, uh, starting salary $6,500 a year with a $250 signing bonus. And my mom said, heck no, you're going to get a real job. We're getting ready to start a family. <laughs> wow. Things have changed. That's a cool story. Yeah, Very cool. cool story. Thank you, Rick. Appreciate that, my man. And, and what if, I mean, play this out to the extreme. I mean, these are hypotheticals, but it's kind of interesting because we're in a new era. I mean, I think we all accept we're not going back to the good old days of amateur athletics. I mean, it's big business. It's a lot of money. Um, I'm not saying money corrupts things, but money changes things. I mean, there's no doubt money corrupts some things, but money changes everything. But what if you are a college football player and you're in great demand? Let's say you're a five-star recruit from Dothan, Alabama, and you're deciding between Florida, Florida State, Clemson, South Carolina, Alabama, and Auburn. Guess what? One of those states has an advantage. Florida has a no income tax. I mean, do you think about that? I mean, if, if, you, if you're the best high school football player since Cam Newton and you're considering, okay, these two schools in South Carolina, what is their state tax rate? These two schools in Alabama, what is their state? Oh, Florida State and Florida exempt me from state income tax. I mean, is that where we're headed? I don't know. I don't have any idea. We know that some professional athletes base their contract decision where they're playing on, does it have a state income tax or not? 
Because if you're making 20, 25, 30, 35, 40 million dollars a year, I mean, that's an enormous savings. If you go to Texas and play for the, you know, the Dallas Cowboys or the San Antonio Spurs, or you go to Florida and play with the Miami Heat or Miami Dolphins, I mean, there's quite a savings there. So I wonder if that would ever be a condition of which a college football player uh, made a decision on. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. If I were to run for governor, I never will, but if I were to run for governor today, I would run with two issues as my platform. I mean, it'd be keep it simple, stupid. It would be abolish the state income tax, and it would be to invest more aggressively in our energy grid than any state in America. I mean, that would be my, I mean, it, it would be that. I'd find about a 10-minute speech on energy. I'd come up with a 10-minute speech on the advantages of not having a state income tax. How do you make the revenue up? You grow. I mean, you grow the economy. How do you grow the economy? You provide affordable and, and uh, reliable energy. I, I just think there's great beauty in that. And I know three or four that are considering running for governor, you know, in 2028, uh, six, 2026. And I, I just got, I mean, that, that would be very, I just think that's a, I don't want to say it's the best agenda ever because who knows, but I just think that sales, I think that flies at a fast growing state like South Carolina. And then I'm telling you guys, we are, we are, we are going many, many days without you knowing how close we are to running out of energy capacity. I mean, having been in politics, having spent some time with people who make those sorts of decisions that I maintain those friendships and it's touch and go. I mean, when it gets really, really cold or really, really hot for an extended period of time, I mean, we're at the we're at the edge. I mean, we really and truly are. Uh, we're challenged in being able to. I mean, I think we import energy, but I would get the guys from Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op. I'd get the guys from Duke Energy. I'd get the guys from wherever, and I'd say, look, hey, I need you to help me understand what investments need to be made. What, what, what developments do we need? What innovations? Whatever we need to do. Is there an idea out there we don't know about when it comes to some of these portable nuclear facilities? Are there new age scrubbers for coal generation? Uh, that, that, would be, I mean, that, that would be my priority. Abolish the state income tax and invest more heavily in our energy grid um, than any state in America. I, I just, and once again, I don't know what needs to be done energy related. But I would get with some of the leaders. I mean, here in our part of the country, it'd be, you know, Marlboro Pity Electric Co-op. I mean, they were born in government. They believe one day they'll die in government. But I would let them try to help me develop some of these plans and ideas about what investments need to be made, what strategy needs to be uh, employed to, to make sure we've got the energy necessary to meet our demands as we continue to try and try and grow. When you look up and down the East Coast, we get caught up in this growth we're having in South Carolina, but when you look up and down the East Coast from Miami to New York, we're still one of the most far, far, sparsely populated areas in America. I mean, there's a lot of stories out there. The Atlantic Magazine, liberal in nature, but but pretty provocative. I mean, they make me scratch my head a little bit. I mean, they, they're liberal, and they hate Trump with everything they got, but they do make me scratch my head about, okay, I mean, I hadn't thought of that. They did a big article about a year ago, and it had kind of, um, the South Carolina coast and in kind of a red circle. And it said, why does this place not have a major metropolitan area? I mean, Charleston's not a major metropolitan area. It's, it's a growing city. Uh, it's, it's limited in how much it can grow. And we talked yesterday about Allendale and, and Mount Pleasant. I mean, it's, it's, it's growing like, like wildfire, but why did it take so long for that area? I mean, you look at name another state that doesn't have a coastal 
major metropolitan area. I mean, look it up and down the coast of Florida. Uh, and it's weird. I mean, there's some beaches, and then others don't have beaches. You know, North Carolina got all these outer banks and islands. I mean, that's different. That's a different sort of coastline. I just don't think we've ever strategically planned on how to prepare and and, and handle the growth that could come if we ask people to come. And now they're coming. I mean, they're coming, and we see some of the problems we're having. I mean, I think we're 20 years behind in the necessary infrastructure to develop our coast. And, and, and I go back to what you and I call the coast. I mean, I don't call Ainer the coast. I just don't. But if you lived in Chicago, you do. If you lived in Cleveland, you do. If you lived in Newark, New Jersey, you do. Um, I had a buddy of mine talking about Longs and Lores. I had some business in Longs and Lores, and I called him one day, and I said, man, what in the world's going on in Longs and Lores? My business has grown 30% in a year. He said, it's close to the beach. I said, that's not close to the beach. He said, if you grew up in Cleveland, it is. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. Take a break. Back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven. I've got an announcement that I'm going to make sometime in the next 30, 45 minutes. I mean, I, I don't know why, but I told Rev something this morning that is on my heart. And it's something that my instinct says. I've got no data, no analytics. Nobody in the mainstream agrees with what my feelings are. But something tells me. Something tells me that something is happening that we better pay closer attention to than most of America thinks we should. Let's go to the phone. Hmm. Now, that's a tease. Uh, Jason and Marion, good morning. Good morning, Ken. Good morning, Dave. Um, Ken, you were just talking about the infrastructure down here at the coast and how we're 20 years, you think we're 20 years behind. And I've kind of been waiting for a good opportunity to uh, ask you about this, but about a week or so ago, there was a, a gentleman that was on one of the beach stations talking. I think he was from the Conway City Council or County Council, one of those, one of those two. And he was part of the ride program or something that was on that committee. And he was, they were talking about all the um, projects they have coming up and what they're thinking of doing and about that penny tax. That's they're going to try to continue that um, to, I guess, fund some of these and. He was talking about, uh, I guess, expanding Highway 22 down through Bucksport and going down to Georgetown and then Highway 90 from Conway out to North Myrtle Beach, widening that. But one thing he mentioned, and I, I thought this was done with, was he said something about I-73 or I-74 and how they were trying to get um, the plans in work through the state and maybe through some federal funding to try to fund that project, but... I thought that was, you know, I thought that had been thrown out the window and they weren't even going to try that anymore. Do you have any idea what's, what they're talking about or what he was talking about? Well, I mean, it's thank you, Jason. Appreciate that. But I mean, there's a lot of conversation about 73. I led a delegation to Washington. Good friend of mine, Brad Dean, ran the Myrtle Beach Chamber of Commerce. They were very supportive. The powers to be in Horry County were very supportive of 73. I found myself trying to serve two masters. When I went and led a delegation to Washington, we met with Congress about I-73 and some of the federal funding needed to connect North Carolina to South Carolina. South Carolina, I mean, it really comes out of the Midwest, and it you know it delivers people into the Grand Strand. The Grand Strand and, and Horry County is the most populated area in America without major interstate access. I mean, think about that. I, you know, I'll tell you how I know that we've been woefully negligent in prioritizing the the Horry County region 
there are as many lanes of traffic. It's a little different now um, because you got 22 and 31, and you, you've got a little, not a southern connector. And the reason, Jason, that I don't buy the 22 going to Georgetown is wetlands. I mean, it, there's so much wetland to be mitigated. It would be a 30-mile bridge. I mean, in all honesty, when you look at, like, going to the Grand Strand, you kind of go through Aner, and then the, you know, the northern connector, so to speak, goes north. There's nothing that goes south. There was always a plan to build one. I mean, why would you build one to the north and not to the south? Both are, are heavily populated. But they began, the Army Corps of Engineers began negotiating with DOT, and, and it was just, I mean, it, the, the price was just unbelievable. I mean, it would have been a 30-mile bridge. Uh, I mean, I'm not saying every every foot of road would, would have been on, on pylons, but it, it kind of sort of uh, would have, and they just didn't have the money. So I'm not saying they scrapped the plan. I would imagine the plan's still out there. Um, it's just going to be multiple billions of dollars, and it's not feasible um, to do that. They're still looking at other ways to get people from point A to point B, and I mean, it, Rev and I talk a lot about this. I don't know what, um, I mean, th- there was a day that the Florence market was bigger than the Myrtle Beach market. I mean, in media, radio, and television. Um, when, you know, when I got elected to county council, the population of Florence County was about 135,000. That would have been in 2004, 20 years ago. Today, the population is, what, 142 or three or 4,000? The population of Ore was about the same. I mean, it was about 135,000, and they're approaching 400,000. I mean, we've had enormous, you know, growth in and along the Grand Strand, and we've not had much here in Florence County. And when you think about the congressional seat, the media and radio market, I mean, I think Rev can correct me, the television market is the Myrtle Beach Florence market. I mean, it's one market. The radio market is different. It's the Florence market, and it's 180. Or so. And it's two. Okay, it's it's yeah. yeah I mean, and 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 Myrtle Beach is. Uh, it's in the hundreds. I mean, it, it yeah. could be a top fifty yeah. or sixty. You told me that could be. But if it continues, the trends is, is going on. I mean, Myrtle Beach could be a top fifty or sixty radio market in America. And I'm talking about the Grand Strand, the surrounding areas of Grand Strand. So we've seen Myrtle Beach is one twenty nine. Okay, one twenty nine. Um, and that's just based on population. That's based on population and listenership and whatnot. But um. I mean, when you really think about what I call the negligence is um, I'm sitting in traffic between Conway and Myrtle Beach, and there are many lanes of traffic there as there are between Pamplico and Florence. And I'm a Pamplico homer. Don't get me wrong. But if you honestly prioritize infrastructure spending, there should be, there should be newsflash. There should be more lanes of traffic going from Conway to Myrtle Beach than there should be um, from Florence to Pamplico. But, but that's seniority in the state house at work. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. I'm not saying you got to like it or not like it. It really plays back to some of what I say about political representation. We're going to end up with a scenario. I got invited to speak to the Rotary in Florence in March, and I was advised to be apolitical. I mean, don't bring a bunch of partisanship talking points into, you know, the, the Rotarians. That's not what we do, and I respect that. But, but it's, hard to be not, it's hard to not be political when you give a speech about anything. And what I wanted to focus on was the things that I talk about regarding our state and, and, and the lawsuit in Alabama, I think it's the Greeks case, that, that basically said, you know, one man, one vote. And I'm not sure that's good for South Carolina. I mean, it's good for Horry County. It's good for Charleston County. It's good for Lexington County. good for Greenville County. It's good for York County. But it's bad for everybody else. 
We've had this enormous population explosion, but it's only been at about six or seven places around our state. And because we don't have one senator, one county, you're going to have about five counties in the state with about 65% of the Senate representation. And that's, I don't know that that's good. I mean, the senator in Horry County is not going to worry about roads in Florence County. He shouldn't. I mean, he's got an obligation to the state, but who elects him? I mean, who puts him back in office? The people of his district. So I can imagine a senator from Horry County having a meeting with his constituent and says, hey, guys, I'm not going to fund infrastructure in Horry County. Florence has some issues. You know, Hampton has some issues. Oconee has some issues. No. I mean, you got to go to work for your people. That's the way government works. This is yin and yang about the betterment of the state, but I'm not a statewide elected official. I've got to get the job done for my people. And if we need roads and we need stormwater drainage and we need infrastructure improvements, they're counting on me to do that. And all of a sudden, Rev, a, a larger and larger percentage of our money is going to be allocated in fewer and fewer places. Now, you can argue, yeah, but that's where the money needs to be spent. That's where the people are. Fair enough. But but I just think it gets so out of balance at some point in time that it's a negative influence or effect on statewide on statewide politics. We don't need five counties in South Carolina having two-thirds of the Senate. I mean, we, we just don't. That's going to be a bad day for all of us. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Jim in Florence. Hello, you're on. Hey, good morning. So, Ken, the, the Reynolds v. Sims case that you're talking about, the big problem with it, too, is, is we've had all these senators and we had the Home Rule Act of 1975, which was anything but the Home Rule Act of 1975. And these senators still control all these things down at the county level. Um, you know, they, they control who gets on the election board and who runs the water department and um, so many different things uh, across the county level that county government doesn't control, CT, CTC funds, all these different things that senators control. But so many of them don't reflect the electorate of their county. Um, and we've gone through that before about counties that surround Florence, how they're really Republican counties, but they have Democrat senators. Um, if you elected a senator by county in South Carolina, we would have even more Republican um, senators in our uh, our Senate State House. So, Ken, do you think if we were able to figure out how to sue South Carolina to enforce its constitution and it worked its way up, that the Supreme Court today um, in Washington would overturn Reynolds v. Sims? Thank you, Jim. Appreciate that. That's an interesting argument. I, I've toyed around with that idea, and I think I said Griggs a second ago. I meant Sims. Reynolds v. Sims was the Alabama case that one man, one vote. And, um, I mean, some of the justices said, you know, we're not talking about the number of trees. We're not talking about the number of rivers. not talking about the, the how big the economy is. We're talking about one man, one vote. I've thought about that, Jim. I really have. I've thought about how to strategically. I think Jay Jordan, if I, he's a lawyer, I'm not. But I've asked Jay, Jay, if I came to you with a suitcase full of money, and I said, hey, man, I want you to take on this, this argument. And here's what here's the kind of the lay of the land. I'm saying this, and I don't get to make the rules, guys, but if the rule was in South Carolina, one county, one senator, I think we're a better governed state. I mean, I just think we're all better off. I think Horry County would agree to that. I mean, they probably wouldn't sign up for it, but I think we all, 
I mean, if you put your, you know, your, 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 your local hat down for a second and you say, okay, we've got these areas of South Carolina growing like they've never grown before. And along with that comes a census that allocates political power. And all of a sudden York has four senators or he has six senators. Greenville has seven senators. Lexington has six senators. Um, Charleston has six senators. You got 46 total and 30 of the 46 are from, you know, four or five, well, five or six counties. There's nothing good about that. I mean, there's no balance to government. There's no equilibrium to how the state is governed in regards to that combined with a weak governor. That's the argument. The other argument I make, not only are we creating senatorial imbalance in our state house, we've got a weak governor. So all the political yank is the word we always use resides in about five counties and they govern the state. I mean, if we are a legislatively dominated state and we are, and the legislation or the legislature is dominated by five counties, Ori, Charleston, York, Greenville, and Lexington run the state. And I just think that's bad for all of us. I think it's bad for the state in general. And I, you know, but, but how do you go legally about challenging the previous decision? Cause that's the precedent. I mean, the Sims case is the precedent to what a Supreme court does in regards to a state's constitution. I mean, they basically usurp the authority of a state's constitution, but I think it's worth a try. Take a break back in a few. Eight four three six six one zero nine three seven is our number. We'll get back to politics in two seconds. Tanya J. Powers is in New York, and she is our she's kind of our go to lady when it comes to music and and pop culture and whatnot. Um, I mean, I'm the go to guy when it comes to politics. We all know that. <laughs> oh yeah. I'm unrivaled when it comes to mm-hmm. political opinion and punditry, but I don't know as much about music um, as Tanya does. It's sad. Um, I'm sixty. And anytime somebody 62 dies of cancer, it, I mean, it, I don't want to say it upsets me, but it makes me think about mortality and the end of life and what have you done and what haven't you done. Country music is kind of reacting to the tragic death of, um, of country music star Toby Keith. Um, Tanya, you are our go-to music aficionado. What is, the, um, what is the country music world's reaction to losing Toby Keith? I mean, there's been a lot of of outpouring, obviously, from the music world in general, especially country. Uh, And by the way, when he announced he had uh, stomach cancers, he announced that diagnosis when he was 60 uh, in 2022. And the, you know, I I think when it when it happened and we we learned about his death, um, you know, in the last day or so, it, it really it, it may have shocked a lot of people. You know, a lot of people may have missed the fact that he was suffering from stomach cancer. Um, the, the country music world, I know some of the, the legendary artists have, have talked about their, you know, dealings with him and singing with him and how, you know, they will miss him uh, and how he was a, you know, great guy and amazing artist. The Oak Ridge Boys uh, have released, you know, their, their statement. They said they loved and respected him on every level. Um, they, you know, whispered many a prayer for him as he fought his, fought his illness. T.G. Shepard uh, released a, a statement about it. Um, you know, the, uh, Janie Fricky, uh, she called him a great talent. Uh, the Ricochet, uh, Heath Wright of Ricochet, which was a band that, you know, was coming up around in the 90s about the same time that, you know, Toby Keith was, you know, <laughs> had so many chart toppers. Um, you know, they they talked about, about him and about, you know, their, their, you know, kind of, dealings with him at the same time that they were all, you know, in, in big country music. Because if you, if you look back over his career, um, 
he actually started his first single, uh, Should Have Been a Cowboy, was released in 1993. Um, if you weren't already feeling a little bit old today, that may have done it for you. I'm yeah, really, you just, uh, you just really knocked sorry. me. You, you just kind of. <laughs> I'm really sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and, you know, the success he had, if you look at the at the number of songs that he had, I mean, he he had 20 number one Billboard hits, more than 60 singles on the hot country chart over his career. Um, you know, he is known for those, you know, raucous kind of sing-along songs. Red Solo Cup is, is one of them. Um, as Good As I Once Was is another one of those, Beer For My Horses, the duet with Lily Nelson, How Do You Like oh. Me Now? I mean... All of these are, you know, the big ones. There was, of course, the post-9-11 song, like uh, Courtesy of the Red, White, and Blue. Um, you know, there was a whole lot of those. There were also, if, you, if, you have, if you're used to those and you're like, man, yeah, that was, he was a great songwriter, I mean, a great talent. If you go back and listen to some of his ballads, uh, that's what I was doing. Because you know, I was in country radio at the time when, when he was, you know, when he had come out, basically. Um, should have been a cowboy in '93. Was played three million times on radio stations. It was the most played country song of the '90s. I don't know how many hundreds of those I was responsible for for hitting the button on that, <laughs> but quite a quite a quite a few. <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, just if you look back at his legacy of music and the breadth of it, it is it is a lot of it is a whole lot of different kinds of country music all rolled into his career. It's, it was, you know, it's, he's going to be missed. And, and Tanya, I'm a self-confessed good old boy. His brand, and I don't want to know, I mean, I'm sure there was a lot of thought put into this, but he was very patriotic or presented himself as very patriotic and committed to the military. And for whatever reason, good old boys kind of find that uh, they're, they're favorable toward a country music artist who basically says, yeah, I'm a proud American, and yes, I support our armed forces. I mean, he made that part of his persona. He did. Matter of fact, uh, Lee Greenwood was one of the people who put out a statement yesterday about Toby Keith, and he said he was pleased the way he called me the OG. Lee Greenwood said that. He said he was honored to work with him um, that when he did through the years. Uh, you know, he said uh, his quote was, I'm confident that Toby was met at the pearly gates by patriots who have gone before and is resting in the arms of Jesus. Very well said. Tanya, thank you for your time. Have a great day. Thank you. And, and I just thought we would break. Uh, I mean, a lot of our listeners are country music fans. And Toby Keith, wow, 1993. Oh, yeah. I can't be right. Tanya's wrong. I mean, there's no <laughs> way. There's no <laughs> way there's, did many, make you feel old, there's huh? that many years in the uh, in, in the rear view. Uh, thanks to Tanya. And yep. um, Godspeed to the Toby Keith family. Let's go to the phone. Bob in Florence. Hey, Bob, you're on. Hey, good morning, gentlemen. Uh Ken, you know, in a, in a local uh, hotel restaurant, as you walk in on the right, there's a, a page from a newspaper back in the 1920s celebrating Florence or celebrating uh, the sesquicentennial anniversary of, of the t city of Florence and naming the city of Florence the Magic City. And if you read through that newspaper article, the main linchpin of that is that, that even at that time in the 20s, uh, Florence was a, a transportation hub. Uh, we had uh, highway, of course, the rail was the big thing, but we also had highways as well. And 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 uh, it, it's kind of faded since then. And and with with Myrtle Beach growing like it is, it, it's a darn shame <clears throat> Florence can't take advantage of that w with its positioning, with 
two interstate highways, rail, air service, and whatnot. Um, I've, been, I've been tossing some ideas around in my head, and I, I'm thinking about uh, a concept I call the trans or, or the uh, commerce corridor, developing between Florence and Myrtle Beach, developing a, a commerce corridor where um, transportation would 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 be the the the, the center of it, something like uh, let's say perhaps a high speed rail service between uh, Florence and the beach, with maybe stops in Marion somewhere in that area. So that, that folks coming from the north and coming from the upper Midwest that are coming to live in this area uh, could live along this corridor. They could live along it in subdivisions and, and developments. And if they wanted to go to the beach for a day, you know, they could hop aboard some form of transportation and then convey them to the beach where they could could partake in uh, whatever they wanted to do and then come home without having to put up with the traffic and without having to contribute to the traffic with 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 additional vehicles um something like a you know an elevated type of, of system that wouldn't impact the wetlands so bad uh and be a lot easier to build uh i just wanted to you know Bob, let, me, let me ask you a question i want to get your take on this because you're thinking i mean i think about these things all the time and i'm thinking about if i had unlimited funds i mean if i were the, the federal government and i could print money and spend it the way i wanted to spend it what would an investment in high-speed rail and some of the commuter rail you're talking about? Because I've thought of this. Can we get from Florence to Myrtle Beach in 20 minutes on a high-speed rail? Can we get to Florence? I'm thinking about going to the Clemson or Carolina basketball game. You know what I mean? Can I get on a high-speed rail in Florence and get to Colonial Life Arena in 25 minutes? I mean, that, that makes life more portable and accessible. But, but let, let, let me ask you a question because I, I want you to think about this. We were a state of about 3 million people for a long time. And all of a sudden, we became a state of five and a half million. Does South Carolina want to have 10 million people that call it home? I mean, isn't that kind of a fundamental debate we need to have with ourselves? The, the SEC is looking to grow. I mean, they're talking about the Big Ten and SEC and Clemson and Florida State and whatnot. I know for a fact that the SEC would rather grow in North Carolina and Virginia because there's roughly 22 or 3 million people in those two states. South Carolina has half the population that North Carolina has. Does South Carolina want to lose its southern flavor by adding another 5 million people um, to the state? That's a good question. I've thought of it myself. and and How much of what we're used to do we lose if we go from 5 to 10 million people in 20 years? Oh, we're going to lose some of it, no doubt about that. But I think it's going to happen anyway, whether we like it or not. And the people that are going to end out on top are, are the communities and regions that plan and develop in anticipation of the influx of, of uh, folks coming in here to live. They're going to come in here to live no matter what. You can All you got to do is drive down, uh, uh, go to the beach down uh, 501 and 22 and find out what's going on and look at the land being cleared. Uh, uh, they're, they're, they're putting in housing developments as fast as they can get it permitted. And, and weather permitting, get it get it installed. Um, I, I I think that uh, that, that we you, you can you, to answer your question. Yes, you, there are high speed rail designs that you can put in that could get us to the beach in fifteen or twenty minutes from Florence nonstop. And uh, there are, uh, pardon the expression, buttloads of money available in Washington for rail development right now under the current administration. So uh, it's something that the state could take advantage of and uh, as far as funding for assistance. But uh, uh, certainly uh, 
the 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 interest is there from a federal standpoint for railroads, no doubt about it. It's been done in Europe for years. You go to France, they've got extensive rail service to and from their coastal areas and north and south in their coastal areas. Thank you, Bob. Appreciate that. So here's the argument. I mean, it's the debate question of the morning, and I don't know the answer to this, but it's a lot of fun to debate. If you're governor of South Carolina, are you preparing? I mean, let's say we elected a rock star of a governor, a young guy, young lady, very ambitious, very visionary, accepted the fact that South Carolina eventually will have 10 million people, um, 9 million, 8 million, whatever that number. I mean, there's a number out there. I mean, it's the critical mass of people who, in other words, we got no more room. I mean, the peninsula of Charleston doesn't have any more room. Manhattan doesn't have any more room. We've got a lot of room. I mean, we've got a lot of room to grow. And I'm telling you guys, I've looked at some of the numbers. We were stuck on about 3 million for a pretty good period of time. It was a smokestack economy. It was an agrarian economy. And all of a sudden, something happened in the Midwest. We had a kind of um, the deindustrialization of the Midwest led to, a, led to a kind of a massive population migration, the cold weather and retirees. And, um, and you know, let, let's be honest. I mean, I'll be political. You ready? Big government. I'm an expensive government. High taxes. We've got somebody who works at community broadcasters that relocated from New Jersey. They told us what their taxes were on like a 3,000, and it's staggering. I mean, it, it would blow your mind to know what that person was paying for ad valorem property taxes on a 3,000-square-foot house in New Jersey. They feel like they won the lottery. I mean, a tax bill that you and I like become irate and, and want to write letters to the editor. I mean, they're, they're celebrating like it's the, the 4th of July. But, but I think Bob offers up an interesting debate question. Once again, what is good old South Carolina at 3 million is all of a sudden kind of sort of good old South Carolina at 5 million. I've told the story, and I'll stick to my guns here. When I go to a sports bar in Pauly's Island that I watch a few ball games at occasionally and drink a cold beer, they got a good hamburger, good cold beer, they got a bunch of TVs, it's never – the focus on Gamecocks or Tigers. It's always, can you turn that television to the Michigan State game? Can you turn that one to the Ohio State game? Hey, Rutgers is playing Villanova. And I'm like, damn. I mean, this is this is my <laughs> state. Turn every TV on here to Clemson in South Carolina. Let's show these northern aggressors a thing or two. But it's the way of the world. It's where we are. It's what we are. And I think we've got to be prepared. And that goes back to... I mean, if we were to abolish the state income tax, how much population increase does that lead to? If you're a political leader, do you think about a South Carolina with 9 million people? I mean, Bob just said he thinks they're coming anyway. I mean, they're chasing weather. They're chasing a cheaper you know, cheaper style of life or a quality of life they can afford at a fair price. They don't believe they get that in New York, New Jersey, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio. So they're coming other places. And I do think that I will live long enough you see, South Carolina have seven and a half million people. I mean, unless, you know, something crazy happens and I die unexpectedly. I mean, I think if I live a normal life and I live as long as, you know, in, in some expected accident or, or illness, I mean, obviously you can't plan on that. But I think if I live the normal 80 years, I will see South Carolina approach seven and a half million people. What is our cap? I mean, North Carolina's got, what, 10? Georgia's got 20? I mean, does Georgia have 20 million people? Look at the population of Georgia, Reb, and see what else. I mean, they're a little bit bigger acreage. I mean, I get that little more room to spread out, but we've got this enormous coastline that is entrancing. There's a saying in Myrtle Beach, it's hard to screw up God's work. 
And God painted the most beautiful picture imaginable by giving us the grand strand that he gave us. And now people are finding it. 10.8 million. Okay, in Georgia. In Georgia. Uh, in Georgia. So, so 11 million people in Georgia. I mean, that'll be 12 or 13 before you know it. North Carolina will be north of 10 uh, before you <laughs> know it. You know what Florida is? Yeah. Uh, Florida's probably 30 million. Yeah, 21.7. Okay, 21. I mean, it'll be 25 million before you know it. And, and they're going to come to South Carolina. Are we ready? Are we planning? Do we have vision for what our state looks like at 7.5 million people, at 9 million? I mean, that would be the odd. Why does nobody, if you asked our government leadership, what is the plan once we get to 7 million people? I don't know. What is the plan once we get to 9 million? I don't know. Well, you got to think about that. I mean, you can't, you can't fart highways and roads and bridges and infrastructure. I mean, that takes a lot of planning, a lot of funding, and a lot of prep work. And, um, I mean, we're, we're education and infrastructure. I, I mean, what if we had a rock star of a governor, a young, enthusiastic, ambition, visionary leader that said, look, I'm going to begin building South Carolina for 10 million people. We're going to start today. You guys think I'm crazy. We're going to invest in our energy grid. We're going to invest in our infrastructure, whether it's high-speed rail or not. We're going to abolish the state income tax because I want South Carolina to have 10 million people. That spreads the tax burden. I, I, I just That's something we have to begin thinking about. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. It's Breeze. Good morning. You know, it must really suck up there in Yankee land. But I tell you, they're different. You know that kid. They don't understand. They don't have the roots. What are yeah, they different, Bruce? I mean, I'll agree with you. But what what is what is your explanation about why well, they're different? What about well, them is Bruce, different than us? I don't know what the hell it is. I don't. Maybe there's something about our southern family culture. You know, the family and friends. We look at friends. Well, they look at friends differently than you and I do, or or, or at least the way you and I should look at friends. You know. You know, when you call when you call somebody a friend out here, you know, you got your friends, then you got your friends. But to me, to be able to just jump, just uproot your your whole your wife and whatever, and just leave your kids, your family, your friends, the state you grew up in, all of that behind, and not really give a rat's ass, and then come back down here, and then tell everybody how great it was up there. I mean, that's a different kind of person. You know what I mean? I do. The idea, I mean, I wouldn't even really, even if I had the money, I don't think I'd want to move to Florida. I got my family, my kids are here. You know what I mean? My friends are here. Well, it's your way of life. I mean, you build a life around a certain value system. And and, and, you know, I, I, and it's kind of my ground. You, you know what I mean? It's yeah. my ground. You know what I mean? When I go to Florida, it ain't my ground. South Carolina's my ground. But they don't think of it that way. But anyway, you know, I was going to tell you, uh, you remember when uh, we were kids, you might be, a, I was a little young part, but you remember that the government, where everybody was afraid of the, a nuclear bomb blowing up by the Russians, you know, and so the, the government told all of the children and parents that if their kids would just get underneath their desk, they'd be fine. You remember that? I remember it well. Mm-hmm. Well, it, but they, they, they had to know that was bull crap. They were lying to us. But they wanted to instill fear in us. And some people say, well, maybe they just wanted to ease our fears. No, they wanted to create the fear to where when authority tells you to do something, you do it. 
is what they did with COVID. Now you know the way the law works is you can't you don't have to you don't get a vaccine for something that can be treated with other medications. So you know you had the uh, Johns Hopkins who wrote this paper saying that hydrochloroquine was bad for it, was dangerous. Well, you know, Johns Hopkins was the guy that pretty much invented hydrochloroquine. And it was, a, you know, I mean, that's where they got their namesake. John Hopkins and hydrochloroquine are synonymous. But they, but they sit there to show you the evil of this whole thing, and there had to be a lot of people involved with this. They suppressed all information about any medicine that could work just to help with COVID so they could force these shots on us. And I'm telling you, um, everything I keep reading just, just shows that we're getting attacked from every single um, angle we can get attacked from. But in fact, the main thing is, Kim, where they get us is with fear. Um, the point is that the COVID shot, we all know what's going on there, but it's the fear, the fear. If you vote for Trump, the fear is we'll, he'll destroy our democracy. If you vote for Trump, the fear is we'll have World War Three. You, you see what I'm doing? It's fear. It's fear is what they're peddling. Gotcha, Breeze. Um... That's kind of an. This is a good. I, this I, this is so random and spontaneous, and it's unfair to Josh and Rev. I didn't tell them. Let's do this. Um, Tucker Carlson is interviewing Vladimir Putin, and Josh, I need to get get us in queue in a second. It's on Twitter here. It's about four minutes and twenty eight seconds. Breeze kind of set it up better than I can. And why is America worried, concerned, and alarmed that Tucker Carlson is going to sit down with Vladimir Putin? When most journalists have, I mean, Stephanopoulos scored a Putin interview. Barbara Walters scored a Putin interview. But here's Tucker setting the table for what is to come. I mean, th- this is so spontaneous and unfair to my to my guys here. But uh, but let, let's put us in cue, Josh. It's about four minutes and some odd seconds. But here's Tucker explaining, and I think he does such a a great job of arguing. So you trust Washington, but don't trust Moscow. That that. I never believed that my mouth could fix itself to say that. But but I honestly don't know who I trust less. I don't know if I trust my own government more or less than I trust communist Russia, the former Soviet Union. Tucker does a good job of kind of explaining why he's doing what he's doing. In Moscow tonight, we're here to interview the president of Russia, Vladimir Putin. We'll be doing that soon. There are risks to conducting an interview like this, obviously. So we've thought about it carefully over many months. Here's why we're doing it. First, because it's our job. We're in journalism. Our duty is to inform people. Two years into a war that's reshaping the entire world, most Americans are not informed. They have no real idea what's happening in this region here in Russia or 600 miles away in Ukraine. But they should know. They're paying for much of it in ways they might not fully yet perceive. The war in Ukraine is a human disaster. It's left hundreds of thousands of people dead, an entire generation of young Ukrainians, and it's depopulated the largest country in Europe. But the long-term effects are even more profound. This war has utterly reshaped the global military and trade alliances and the sanctions that followed have as well. And in total, they have upended the world economy. The post-World War II economic order, the system that guaranteed prosperity in the West for more than 80 years, 
is coming apart very fast, and along with it, the dominance of the U.S. dollar. These are not small changes. They are history-altering developments. They will define the lives of our grandchildren. Most of the world understands this perfectly well. They can see it. Ask anyone in Asia or the Middle East what the future looks like. And yet the populations of the English-speaking countries seem mostly unaware. They think that as nothing has really changed. And they think that because no one has told them the truth. Their media outlets are corrupt. They lie to their readers and viewers. And they do that mostly by omission. For example, since the day the war in Ukraine began, American media outlets have spoken to scores of people from Ukraine, and they have done scores of interviews with Ukrainian President Zelensky. We ourselves have put in a request for an interview with Zelensky, and we hope he accepts. But the interviews he's already done in the United States are not traditional interviews. They are fawning pep sessions, specifically designed to amplify Zelensky's demand that the U.S. enter more deeply into a war in Eastern Europe and pay for it. That is not journalism. It is government propaganda, propaganda of the ugliest kind, the kind that kills people. At the same time, our politicians and media outlets have been doing this, promoting a foreign leader like he's a new consumer brand. Not a single Western journalist has bothered to interview the president of the other country involved in this conflict, Vladimir Putin. Most Americans have no idea why Putin invaded Ukraine or what his goals are now. They've never heard his voice. That's wrong. Americans have a right to know all they can about a war they're implicated in. And we have the right to tell them about it because we are Americans too. Freedom of speech is our birthright. We were born with the right to say what we believe. That right cannot be taken away no matter who is in the White House. But they're trying anyway. Almost three years ago, the Biden administration illegally spied on our text messages and then leaked the contents to their servants in the news media. They did this in order to stop a Putin interview that we were planning. Last month, we're pretty certain they did exactly the same thing once again. But this time, we came to Moscow anyway. We are not here because we love Vladimir Putin. We are here because we love the United States, and we wanted to remain prosperous and free. We paid for this trip ourselves. We took no money from any government or group nor are we charging people to see the interview. It is not behind a paywall. Anyone can watch the entire thing, shot live to tape and unedited, on our website, tuckercarlson.com. Elon Musk, to his great credit, has promised not to suppress or block this interview once we post it on his platform, X, and we're grateful for that. Western governments, by contrast, will certainly do their best to censor this video on other less principled platforms because that's what they do. They are afraid of information they can't control. But you have no reason to be afraid of it. We are not encouraging you to agree with what Putin may say in this interview, but we are urging you to watch it. You should know as much as you can. And then, like a free citizen and not a slave, you can decide for yourself. Thanks. Let me, let me ask you a question. If, if, you've, if you have this belief, I mean, whatever the belief is, we're talking about South Carolina population a second ago. This is a world affair. I mean, this is, you know, a, um, a complicated regional global military dispute. There's no way any of you know exactly what the right thing is. The majority of you have formed an opinion based on what you've been told by somebody for whatever reason you have a degree of trust in. Putin's a bad guy. Zelensky's a good guy. Based on what? What do you base that on? 
I mean, I'm not saying it's right or wrong. I don't have any guy. Is Putin a good guy? Is Zelensky a bad guy? Is Zelensky a good guy? Putin a good guy? Um, should sovereign, should Ukraine be a part of Russia? I mean, where did you form your opinion of where you stand in regards to something that you don't know a damn thing about? I mean, you're trusting the Wall Street Journal. You're trusting the New York Times. It makes you feel smart to not trust Tucker. You trust the Wall Street Journal because they've been around forever. Okay, is that news or is that propaganda? Do you really believe the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, and the Washington Post are reporting as the truth or the truthfulness of the issue as its priority? Or are they spinning it to advantage one narrative over another? Of course they are. They, they absolutely are. And I want to delve into that. We, I don't want to get too far behind, Josh. We've got to take a break here. But I want to go down this road, and, and I'm using our industry, conservative talk radio, as kind of one of the, one of the focal points of this, because Tucker is out of the mainstream. I mean, he has an enormous audience. He has a lot of political sway. He freaks the establishment out because he doesn't walk to the beat of their drum, but rather to the beat of his drum. But I want to ask you this. The majority of you have formed an opinion about Russia and Ukraine. Based on what? Who do you trust to tell you the truth about what Ukraine and Russia do? Lindsey Graham? Megan, uh, what, what's her name? Uh, McCain? Kelly. Yeah. Megan McCain. Megan McCain. I mean, John McCain's daughter. Uh, Liz Cheney. The editorial board at the New York Times. Jake Tapper. Jonathan, um, what's his name? Jonathan Carl. George Stephan. I mean, who do you trust? You have an opinion. Everybody has an opinion about Ukraine and Russia. Based on what? And how extraordinary is it that he says that the Biden administration spied on his text messages and were able to stop this interview a couple of years ago. Rev, when you don't wow. walk to the beat of their drum, you become a mortal foe. I mean, that, that's where we are. <laughs> that's where we are in America. And it's hard. It's unfathomable for me. I got really smart people in my world who have formed an opinion based on something the Wall Street Journal or New York Times said. The insanity of that. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Earl in Bennettsville. Good morning, Earl. You're on. Morning. I've got an observation to make. I was channel cruising yesterday afternoon about the time the CBS News was on. Nora O'Donnell reported that the military had stated the reason that they did not see the drone coming in that killed those folks was exactly because it was flying too low. Now, guess what? I was not the only damn one that heard that. So if my point is simply this, if the press reports everything that our military knows, if they had done that during World War II, we'd be speaking German or Japanese. Thank you for your time. Have a good day. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. So let's go down this road together. I told Josh this morning, I gave him fair warning. So we are in a controversial sector of the media and entertainment complex. Conservative talk radio on a scale of 1 to 10, controversial or not, we'd be closer to the 10 than we are the 1. I mean, there's no doubt about it. Um we, we've got we've heard the stories of Limbaugh and boycotts and advertisers and whatnot. Highly ranked radio show, a lot of listeners, a lot of consumers 
I mean, what what is the art of advertising about? To get your product in front of a larger and larger audience that can and are willing to buy your product. But for whatever reason, because I, I thought about this a couple of weeks back. We, we live in a media age and era where the majority of narrative is bought and sold. I mean, CNN does not interview Republicans. They interrogate Republicans. I mean, why do they do that? I mean, they, they've got a liberal bent and bias about them, but I would argue the majority of sponsors on CNN's network or advertisers on their network want certain things done. Pfizer would be the best and most recent example. Why does Pfizer advertise on Meet the Press? I mean, do you believe that Pfizer spends millions of dollars on Meet the Press and don't ever argue for a certain way to confront a Republican who may be considered an anti-vaxxer, whether he is or not, may have questions about the vaccine. So here's my point. You got Vladimir Putin as, um, as president of Russia, and we're going to chastise the Russian government for being uh, led by Vladimir Putin. He's a bad guy. He's evil. He's former KGB. He's a killer. He's all these other things. We live in a democracy, and we elected an 80-year-old guy with dementia. Who are we to criticize? Josh asked an interesting point. Be honest with yourself. Who would you rather be president of the United States, Joe Biden or Vladimir Putin? I mean, we've been conditioned, we've been trained to believe that Putin's evil. He may be. I mean, he may be the most evil man imaginable. He's a communist. I don't want communism in America. But we elected, I mean, we're critical of all these governments around the world and, and the leadership they elect and, 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 and how crazy it is that this guy's in charge of that country. We elected an 80-year-old man that is in serious cognitive decline and said he had a conversation after he got elected with the former president of France who died in the 1990s. I mean, that's our guy. Who are we to criticize Russians? Would you rather be governed by a communist or an incompetent, uh, somebody who believes in democracy. I mean, our leadership is incompetent, unbelievably incompetent, and we, the people, still believe what we're told by a propaganda or a propagandish media, and it's bizarre to me. I mean, I'm thinking about Russia and Ukraine, and I'll go back to that, Josh. Everybody listening to my voice, more than likely, has a, a belief about what needs to be done in Ukraine and Russia. Based on what? Based on what I've said? Based on what Rev said? Based on what Josh said? Based on what you read in the New York Times? What you saw on Meet the Press? That news is not news. It's not objective journalism. It's propaganda. There's a narrative, there's a pervasive narrative that is bought and sold. And it depends on what the narrative needs to be. I mean, that's what the media is going to tell us. So, I mean, I get they're communist. And I get we don't want to live in a communist country. And I get you and I, Rev, grew up in the Cold War. I always think about the former Soviet Union, the KGB, and, right. you know, the, the, the Reagan Revolution, the Cold and we won the Cold War and all these and all that. But, but who are we? I mean, how many sheeps do we have in our nation that are terribly misled by forming opinions? Based, I mean, conventional wisdom is the media reports on things, and you kind of make your mind up from there. And here's where I go to advertisers. This is so interesting to me because I've read this and I've studied and I've tried to better understand it. You know who doesn't have audiences? The propagandists. I mean, they, they don't have any audience. I mean, CNN doesn't have any audience. MSNBC doesn't have any audience. The Sunday morning shows don't matter anymore. You know who has huge audiences? 
Joe Rogan, Tucker Carlson, talk radio. I mean, we just got our ratings rev. We killed it. I mean, without going, if I if I quote Dad, I got to give them credit. You know, the the Nielsen report said such and such. I don't have any idea. Rev says it was really really good. If Rev says it's really really good, that's fine with me. So if you are somebody who owns a business and you're making a decision about your widget and where I want to advertise, are you going to the propagandist to advertise because that's conventional wisdom, or are you going where the audiences are? I've just never understood that. We are controversial. I mean, there's no doubt about it. We are opinionated. We say things out of the mainstream. Why do we say it? Why do I say it? Can't speak for for these guys. You know why I say it? Because I believe it. I believe it to be true. Tucker Carlson wants to hear from the horse's mouth. I don't want to know what the Wall Street Journal thinks about Vladimir Putin. They're not going to tell me the truth. I don't care what the New York Times says about Vladimir Putin. They're not going to tell me the truth. I want to sit down with Putin, and I want to sit down with Zelensky, and I want to ask journalistic in nature questions, not fluff, not softballs, not a script that the military industrial complex gave me to make sure Raytheon would advertise on my show. So if you're an advertiser, if you own a business and you have an advertising budget, what about controversy scares you? To me, controversy should be attracting because that seems to be where the majority of Americans find themselves listening and interacting with. Joe Rogan's controversial. Millions of views. Tucker Carlson, controversial. Millions of views. Talk radio, controversial. Millions of listeners all over the country. CNN dying on the vine. But they're propped up by Pfizer. They're propped up by uh, the green industry, the the the, the military. I mean, they're propped up. And, and, and you folks out there, a certain percentage of you are still suckers. You're still believing the narrative that the propagandists are selling. And we don't have a narrative. I mean, we don't have a preconceived narrative here. It's, once again, the last bastion of free thinking. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Drew in Florence. Hi, you're on the air. Hi. Uh, I uh, wanted to uh, talk about the uh, coverage of the Ukraine war and specifically some of the uh, sources that might be helpful in understanding it. I found that uh, The Gates of Europe by Sergei Psoky and then also uh, Red Famine by Anne Applebaum are two good books that kind of speak to the relationship between Ukraine and Russia and, I don't know, set the stage for what's going on there now. I think a lot, too much, there's been too much conversation about the personalities of Zelensky and Putin. And, you know, they're, they're, they may be good guys, they may be bad guys, but really this is about an existing relationship between these two countries. And if you go back in history, you can see that Ukraine is often trying to move towards the West and Russia is trying to pull them back into the Russian empire. So, you know, I think, I think that uh, Tucker Carlson's interview with Putin, while it will be interesting, I don't think it's going to tell us that much new that we can't get from reading history and uh, understanding this relationship. So that's it. But, but, but would you agree, and, and I respect that, you've read books on Eastern Europe. Ann Applebaum is actually, she was a former editor. She was on the editorial board of the Washington Post. She now works for the Atlantic. I mean, she's an accomplished author, no doubt about it. But if you're right of center and somebody's on the editorial board of the Washington Post and works at the Atlantic, I'm a little skeptical of her interpretation of history. 
Sure. Then, you know, read the book and, and, and kind of uh, take, take shots at her argument, not necessarily just who she is. Fair enough. What I would say. Fair, fair enough. I think that's very fair. Thank you. Appreciate that. I mean, Ann Applebaum is a very accomplished expert on Eastern Europe. I mean, she, Poland and some of the other, I'm not, I'm, 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 this is on the fly now. I'm not reading, so bear with me. I may get some things wrong, but there was a period of time she was on the editorial board of the Washington Post. She is now a contributor at the Atlantic. I'm sorry. That just makes me a little skeptical about what her intent is. Take a break. Back in a few. There are very few things I'll stop a rant. I mean, we pay bills with advertising breaks. Josh gives me the kind of the, um, the old break sign, and I'm like, okay, I'm ranting, so don't stop my rant. But magic always gets my attention. I told you, Rev, the cell phone is magic. I don't understand Pentium chips. I don't understand microprocessors. I just know it's magic what it allows me to do. Another magic that I've recently heard about is you don't have to go to the gym and eat well to lose weight. Ozempic is a, is a medication that some believe is magical because it gives you the benefit of going to the gym, of eating well, whether you go going to the gym and eating well or not. But some believe they've not completely enlightened the public about some potential side effects. Attorney Andrew Reed is with us this morning. Good morning, Andrew. How are you? Doing good. Glad to be on. So are the manufacturers of medicines like Ozempic in legal peril if they don't disclose everything they know about potential side effects? They, It's one, if you don't disclose, there's going to be, and you come to find out you may have known or could have discovered that this side effect existed, that's when a lot of them get into trouble. Now, in this particular case, this is a situation where the drug companies that market this drug have said, no, these were all disclosed. So it's really going to be coming a question of, well, was it disclosed in a manner that these consumers would have been able to actually read that warning label and understand that was the side effect in question that was being brought up with any of these particular side effects. So it's going to be an interesting question for sure to follow. So do we have precedent? In other words, I know that my Apple phone spies on me, but I probably know that I gave them permission when I signed the user agreement. I didn't read verbatim the user agreement. I would imagine the fine print somewhere, some lawyer <laughs> built a contract that allows <laughs> them to do that. What does the public deserve to know? How much clarity do people who use Ozempic deserve to have when they make a decision as to whether or not to take the medicine? It's one, this is, it's one in general, it, I would say for the most part, they need to have full disclosure. If it's something that's known to these drug companies, it needs to be disclosed. And that's typically the standard that will be followed. Now the question may be, how is it worded on the work, the warning label? Is it, could there be potential name differences or different ways to describe the particular side effect? That's when you start getting to the questions. And unfortunately that's when the lawyers get involved and it comes up. Well, they would have known it if it was put this way, but they wouldn't have known it if it was put that way. And it just becomes a big argument at that point. Thank you, Andrew. Appreciate your time. Appreciate your explanation. Have a good day, sir. You're welcome. Glad to be on. Yeah, I just thought there's some of you out there considering um, a better way to lose weight and maintain healthy um, metrics. You don't like going to the gym. You don't like eating well. So Ozempic says you don't have to. Just take this magic pill. And there's right a, before there's your very eyes. There's a lot of people on that. I mean, I run it. I, I it's could probably, crazy how many people are taking it. Yeah. 
I mean, it, it I want to slap them. I mean, I want to slap people that are taking that pill. Oh, because you work Eat out. Eat well and go to the gym. <laughs> Let me say that again. Eat well and go to the gym. You know what? There aren't there aren't side effects. I mean, there aren't side effects. I mean, you'll be sore and you may be a little bit hungry every now and then. Eat well and go to the gym and you'll live longer. You'll feel better. You'll be more productive. You'll be a better spouse. You'll be a better parent. You'll be a better friend. I mean, you'll just be a better person by eating well and going to the gym. Take my advice. There is no magic pill. Ozempic will have significant side effects if you decide to not eat well and not go to the gym. It's cheating. I mean, it's cheating, and cheating has its cost and, uh, and side effects. And you've been consistent. I mean, you've said that even before these magic uh, magic drugs were out there, right? I told you one day when, when you know, the latest, greatest breakthrough in weight loss and healthy um, living, I said, right, it's crazy. There, there is no magic way to be healthy. It's simple. Exercise and what, what you eat. I mean, that's not complicated. I mean, I, you know, is it caveman-ish? Probably, but I tend to do better caveman-ish. thinking like a caveman <laughs> than I do some intellect or highfalutin um, you know, social butterfly. I'm not. I'm not that. All right. So last hour, you know, you laid this thing out there that you're going to say something that's going to surprise us, and I don't have any data. But okay. I, I'd love so, to so say. So this is a this is a gut feeling you're getting ready to share. Something in my gut tells me that South Carolina is going to be closer than we expected to be. Something inside of me, and I don't so in other know words, what it is. Nikki but Haley in the primary will it's going perform, to be closer. perform better than the polls. It, it's going to be showing. closer. Okay. I don't know how much closer. I don't know why I believe that. Best I mean, guess. She lost to none of the above in Nevada. Yeah, by 30 points. Yeah, I mean, how do you lose to none of the above in Nevada? The next CI radio show guy says she's going to do better than South Carolina. I don't know. I mean, I, I, Josh, you're asking me a number. Um, I mean, I always felt 65-35 was Trump's best day. 60-40 was Nikki's best day. I think 65-35 is still Trump's best day, but something tells me 55-45. Something tells me 54. I don't know why. I mean, I don't have anything to substantiate. Well, there my there claim. was some chatter about they were encouraging Democrats to cross over. We know Demo- the Democrat primary did not have very much participation, and I don't know why. I feel the way I do, hmm. but something tells me. Now, I may feel different Saturday. I mean, if Trump comes to Conway and it's electric, and you know what I mean, they get the mojo uh, back going again. It's just Trump has run kind of a stealthy campaign. You and I kind of agree that's probably to his advantage. I mean, it's been kind of under the radar, believe it or not. Trump has been under the radar (laughs) for the most part. Um, I mean, he had some real aggressive things to say in a courtroom, but that's Trump. I mean, anytime he has a chance to speak, it's going to be pretty aggressive and unconventional. Something tells me that there is an unspoken beholdenness we have as South Carolinians to a former South Carolina governor. I, I have not seen a single poll. That substantiates what I say. The only poll I've seen is 58, uh, 32 or whatever it was, 58, 30, uh, 58, 36 or something um, there about. Nikki even said herself that she has to do better in South Carolina than she did in in uh, New Hampshire. She was 43 in New Hampshire. She may do that. She may exceed 43%. 
Now, I could be the biggest moron. I could be reading something into this that's not. I'm not trying to be provocative or out of the. I'm not trying to say something. Wow. Remember when that guy said, I mean, he predicts the future. I mean, I've got no interest in that. I mean, do you, have you run into a lot of people? You talk to a lot of people about this stuff that say they are no. a Nikki Haley no. supporter. Do you no. see a lot of signs no. in yards? No. Bumper stickers? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> okay. Th- th- no, I don't have any proof. I don't have anything to substantiate my claim. I don't have anything to validate the way I feel. But something inside of me, and you, you'll you agree to this, I'm more instinctive than analytical. Oh, yeah. I mean, sure. I'm much more instinctive uh, when my gut speaks loudly and clearly, um, I kind of listen. And my gut is pretty loudly and clearly telling me that this thing on the 24th is going to be closer than most people believe it. it. It'll be interesting to see a poll between now and then. I mean, let's say a poll the first of next week. I mean, the last poll had Trump at 58, Nikki in the 20s or 30s. I think she was in, she was in the 30s. Can she get to 40? Yes. Can she get to 45? The majority of people would say no. She ain't winning South Carolina. I mean, let, let, me, let me back up a half step here. I'm not predicting an upset. Trump's going to win South Carolina. South Carolina is Trump country. As much as any state in America is Trump country. And once they leave South Carolina, she doesn't get the advantage of, you know, homerism. But something tells me that there are a lot of you out there that believe you owe it to a former governor of South Carolina to not let her embarrass herself in her home state. That's all I'm saying. You said, is there anything I've read? No. Is there anything I've seen? No. Is there anybody I've talked to? No. It's completely and totally my gut instinct, but it's... The force is telling you something. Ah, something, yeah. The force is telling me Mm. that Nikki could get to 45. And 55-45 is much closer than most people believe uh, it could be. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. I mean, I'm, I'm leveling with you. But, but, but I can't deny how I feel. Let's go to the phone. Angela in Florence. Good morning. You're on the air. Good morning. I tell you what, you're correct. And let me tell you why. All of my Democratic friends and family love Nikki Haley. They want her as president. They don't like Biden, but they love Nikki Haley. So every single one of them that I have personally spoken to did not vote in the Democratic primary, and they are planning to vote in the Republican primary because they want Nikki Haley as our next president. That is why it is going to be closer than what, we originally thought. Thank you, Angel. Appreciate that. See, there, there, there's some, I mean, there's some personal experience there that validates, you know, something I'm arguing. I mean, it's not there aren't enough Democrats that vote in the Republican primary to beat Trump. I mean, they're just not. I mean, you know, we're a, I mean, we're we're not Wyoming, but we're a we're a plus twelve state now. I mean, there just aren't enough Democrats now. Now, Angela's talking about the number of Democrats that'll vote for Haley. I'm not even in. I mean, I guess if I wanted to be a bit analytical, Rev, if you forced me to be somewhat analytical, I would say the four percent turnout in the Democrat primary leads me to believe there could be a lot of um, Democrats that cross over and voting for Haley. That's not what my. I mean, my 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 senses are telling me this, and I mean it, it's kind of funny. Robert and I had these. We had a thousand conversations, and it was pretty funny. I mean, I I, I think I could do a pretty good at Haley. 
um, <laughs> Robert and I would talk late every afternoon. And Robert would, um, where ain't you going today? <laughs> <laughs> and I'd say, I went to Greenville, I went to Spartanburg, and I went to Gaffney. I didn't go. <laughs> I think he felt like because I'm painting this retainer, he's got to keep tabs on me. And we would literally talk that. I mean, that would be our political. Where ain't you going today? <laughs> and he sounded like that. Who'd you talk to really? today? And I'd respond. And then we talked Braves and Gamecocks and Formula One racing and NASCAR. And I mean, it would be 45 minutes of that. It'd be very little, little politics. But when Robert and I really sat down and, and discussed politics, it was always his analytics and my gut. To this point, and Robert, Robert will admit this, I mean, he's the guru. I mean, he's the, the preeminent Republican pollster in America today. When Robert does a poll, and, it, and it's a little bit ah, different than what he thought it would be, he'll, he'll reach out to me and say, hey, well, what does your gut say? I mean, here's what my numbers say about North Carolina. Here's what my numbers say about the Tea Party. Here's what my numbers say about America First. Here's what my numbers say about Nikki Haley. What, 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 what does your gut tell you? And I was like, I don't know, Robert. I mean, that seems high to me, seems low to me, seems different than what I would have perceived things to be. Never completely dismiss what, what your gut tells you, what your instincts tells you. I mean, especially if you've trusted your instincts to get you uh, to where you are. I mean, I've gone into business deals, Rev, that on paper didn't make perfect sense, but something told me it would work. I've also gone into business deals where the numbers said, hey, this thing will work. I mean, you you, you got to work hard to screw this thing up. And I'm going like, I don't know, man. Something just doesn't feel right about that. I mean, I'm not saying you totally discount analytics. You can't. And Robert's going to be right more than I am. But something, even before Angela called and, and, and said, and maybe that's anecdotal, maybe it's not. But Angela calls and says a lot of her Democrat friends or didn't vote in the Democrat primary, don't want Biden to be the president, they'd rather have Nikki Haley. So not, there's probably going to be more of that than we imagine. And that may, obviously, that contributes to getting from 40 to 45. Trump's not going to lose South Carolina. Nikki Haley is going to lose her home state, but I'm not sure it's going to be as bad as we originally thought. Let's go to the phone. Neil in Sumter listening to WDXY. Hi, Neil. Hey, let me give you another reason why people might vote for Nikki Haley. Yeah, two words, Michelle Obama, because I don't think Trump can beat her. So, I mean, more than any time in my life, I think it's it's a little bit of a toss-up of who the candidates are going to be, right? They're coming at, coming at Trump with both guns legally. I think most of us uh, on the right feel like he's probably going to survive to make it to the general election. I'm not convinced that Biden's going to be the nominee, but I also don't think there's a snowball chance in Hades Trump can beat Michelle Obama because they'll tout her out and it'll be Michelle my bell and all will be forgiven for all the bad policy of the last 16 years. And, uh, and I, I don't think he's got a chance of beating her in the toss up States because of how everybody's going to fall in line behind her. So the, the only thing you can really do is say, well, in case Trump doesn't make it, who, who could beat Michelle Obama? Thank maybe, you, Nick. Appreciate maybe. it. But, but, but I think what's happened, thank you, Nick. Appreciate it. Here's what I think has happened. I think in the last two weeks, I mean, when, when, you're, when you're the opposite of Trump, in other words, there's Trump and there's me. I mean, when there's Trump and six of us, that's different. But all of a sudden, I mean, it can't be mano a mano, but it's man versus woman. Nikki Haley, former governor of South Carolina, and Donald Trump, former president of the United States. So Nikki has to create contrast. To do that, you got to go after Trump. When you go after Trump, you alienate Trump voters. And I think Nikki has crossed the line 
of deciding that if I'm the nominee, I'm not going to get the Trump vote. I mean, DeSantis never went after Trump. Nikki has no choice. I mean, I'm not saying don't go after Trump. I mean, he's the he's the front runner. You got to go after Trump if you're going to win the the primary. But I think what Nikki has done in the last two weeks, and I understand it. I think she's got to do it. There is no other page of the playbook. But I think once you go after Trump, you go after his loyal support, and they'll never forgive her for that. And if Nikki Haley's the nominee, let's say Trump gets convict, convicted of a crime, I think it's far less likely that Nikki wins now than three weeks ago because now she has said some pretty insult. I mean, she went on Saturday Night Live and played along with the skit, kind of a parody skit. I mean, you saw that. Yeah. And I think Trump voters don't forgive you for that. Yeah. They stay I mean, they, home on the election Yeah, they, they just stay home. Okay, that's who you are? Good luck. And there's no way, there's no way Haley wins if 30% of Trump voters stay home. And they will now. They wouldn't have three weeks ago. And I think if DeSantis was the nominee, if Trump gets convicted and DeSantis is the nominee, they, 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 they'll show up. But right now, if Nikki is the nominee as a result of a criminal conviction, 30% of the Trump vote stays home, not just because of Saturday Night Live, but, but because when you insult him, they feel like you're insulting them. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Our next caller is Rujan in Darlington. Good morning. Rujan, you there? Maybe not. No. Okay. Do we have another call? Yep. Okay. We'll go to Daphne and Dylan. Hi, Daphne. Good morning, guys. I've heard it said that a lot of Republicans are, are Democrats, really Democrats. But there are no Democrats that are really Republicans. And an example of that is, for instance, Nikki Haley said she admired Hillary. Well, Hillary gave Russia uranium rights here in America. Nikki gave the Communist Chinese government organization 200 acres in South Carolina. All right. You've got Republicans that claim to be that are now misnaming a bill as a security, a border security bill. And all it is, is they know that Joe Biden is a lawless uh, president who is breaking the law, allowing five to 10 million illegals across the border, and they want to make it legal for him to do that and to tie the hands of any future president from stopping the flow of illegals. The $20 billion that is in that bill will now go to blue states to keep their mouths shut about the illegals in their states, such as Eric Adams and uh, Kathy Hochul, who were complaining, and now they have a billion dollars to hand out a $1,000 debit card to illegals in New York. So what they are actually doing is legalizing Joe Biden's lawlessness. And everyone listening to my voice should call Nancy Graham's office in Washington 
and tell him that by voting for culture for this to be brought to the floor, we know he is voting for open borders the rest of our lives. Thank you. Well, I mean, you can't serve two masters. And James Langford was asked almost an impossible task. I mean, he's McConnell's guy. McConnell appoints him to be lead negotiator in the border security bill. Langford has one master called Washington Establishment. He has another master called the Voters of Oklahoma. And you can't serve two masters. I mean, you got to serve somebody, but you can't serve everybody. And and I think Langford, I mean, it, McConnell rolled on Langford the second he saw that this bill is going nowhere. Let me tell you something about McConnell. McConnell is not interested in a secure border. McConnell is interested in getting $60 billion to Ukraine. I mean, he's probably the biggest advocate for funding the war in Ukraine this side of Lindsey Graham. I mean, that, that's the policy here. That's the sausage being made. The $118 billion bill that included 18% or $20 billion going to border security. Remember yesterday when we talked about the language I mean, the, the, you know, the BS bafflement, I mean, it's 370 pages. It's a lot of words. It's a lot of um, inferences. It's a lot of the president can do this and can't do that. That can get real confusing if you aren't careful. I mean, if you're an old hand at this and, and you've seen the sausage made, you kind of know where to look. I, I try to give a bit of an education yesterday to those who try to understand policy. Go to the math. Go to the money. Forget the squishiness of the language, the inexactness of the language. It's intentionally baffling. I mean, that's why they put it in there. Um, I mean, the, you know, the, the Presidential Parole Act. I mean, the, you know, that, that, that's not revoked. I mean, there's, since 1952, I think, presidents have had ultimate authority on who to parole or who not to parole. It, it, it's a bunch of words on a sheet of paper is all it is. The president has executive authority to enforce border security if he chooses to. So why create 370 new words and $118 billion when he already has the tools at his disposal? We've got laws on the books that will secure the border. This is a foreign policy grab bag. This is trying to get Ukraine more money. Humanitarian aid to Gaza, West Bank, and, and Ukraine. This is not about, this is subservient to, you ready? The military-industrial complex. It tends to always go back to the military-industrial complex complex. This is not about border security. It's never been about border security. And, and I'm trying to educate you guys out there. Forget the 370 words that are intentionally baffling and confusing and forget what Langford says, his interpretation, go to the appropriation. How much money is going where? That's all you need to know. 118 billion, 20 billion is going to border security. 60 billion is going to Ukraine. The entire budget for the United States Marines last year was $53 billion. So we're going to, in one border security policy, send more to Ukraine on top of what we've already <laughs> seen. And there is no accountability. We've got no idea Crazy. what in the hell they're doing with the money once they get it. And don't you remember, McConnell said that the Ukraine was the most important issue to Republican voters. Remember he said that? Well, I mean, he sure year? he said that, but he's, he's senile. I mean, he doesn't know. I mean, he, he's, a sub, he's a servant to the establishment. I mean, that's what McConnell is. McConnell is a senator, but McConnell is, 
I mean, his master is the establishment. It's the military-industrial complex. So when McConnell sends Lankford to the room to negotiate a border security, I mean, if McConnell says, hey, you'll be my guy only if you'll figure out a way to get $60 billion for Ukraine. That's the only way you're my guy. Lankford says, I want to be your guy. He comes out and tries to defend the 370 pages of gibberish, and somebody needs to ask him if it's a border security bill, why are we spending all the money in Ukraine, Israel, and humanitarian aid? It's a foreign policy hodgepodge. Take a break. Back in a few. We're back. Someone's on the phone. Let's go there. Ed in Darlington. Good morning, Ed. You're on the air. Yeah, good morning, Ken. Good morning. Look in uh, this uh, Haley business. I'm planning on voting for Haley. I voted for her twice for governor. But uh, part of my problem is I don't see any path for Trump to win. The uh, problem I see is Biden, who is an old senile guy that can't find his way out of a room, and uh, he beat Trump by 7 million votes. Now, all those Democrats and independents, they're not going to vote for Trump. They may not vote at all, but they're not going to vote for Trump. And he's got to pick up 7 million if if that's just get the same deal. Well, I don't know he, he but he doesn't have to pick votes. up 7 million. He lost by 40,000 votes. No, he lost. I looked up the other day, 7 million. But it's votes. not a national popular vote. It's an electoral college vote. I know that. I know that. But you got a guy up there in, on the Hill that just put uh, Ziegelberg, forced him to apologize in front of everything. He probably wrote a check on the way out of the building to his uh, uh, political machine, and they're they're going to do the same shenanigans as they did last time, except this time they're going to be bigger. But they're going to do that whether Trump's the nominee or not. Oh, I, I suspect so, but it won't be as uh, – Trump has two, three things, okay? You either love Trump, you hate Trump, or you fear Trump. That's going to be the three things that drive everybody to the election. It's not going to be border. It's not going to be all this stuff. It's going to be Trump, 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 just like Russia, Russia, Russia. It's going to be that. That's what's going to control the election. Now, if you got somebody else on the ticket, that gives them something else to think about. And as uh, far as uh, Michelle on the deal, like the guy said earlier, I don't think Michelle Michelle's on the ticket. She's vice president. Gavin Newsom will be the president, uh, running for president. That's the way that one tallies out. But I think she's got a shot at winning the presidency, and that's what we need to be looking at. I don't think Trump can win. You got you you, you tell me how he's going to get those those votes. That's what I want to know. You think he can pick up forty million? 40,000, rather. Uh, uh, but, but I think, uh, let, let me ask you this. Would, would you agree with me, no matter who the nominee is for either party, it's going to be close. I mean, we're, we're a divided nation, whether it's Gavin Newsom, whether it's Michelle Obama, whether it's Joe Biden, whether it's Donald Trump or Nikki Haley or, or, or Ron DeSantis, it's going to be a, t- a close election. And Michigan, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Pennsylvania, and Georgia are going to decide it. Would you agree with that? Oh, I totally agree with that. Okay, and, and I, I just think that's where we got to start. Uh, thank you for the call. Appreciate it. And, and I respect that opinion. I mean, I think that's a valid opinion. A lot of people have um, that opinion. Here's where I think I land with Haley Trump. Do I want establishment normalcy or do I want unique disruption? I mean, that's kind of what I wrote a an op-ed. I think Fitz may have put it up, and then I put it on Facebook and whatnot, but I mean, if you put something on Facebook sympathetic to Trump or, or supportive of Trump, it gets in this algorithmic dynamic <laughs> that doesn't 
that doesn't give you preferential treatment. You're right about that. I, I'll just say that. I mean, if I don't know what their words are or what their, you know, their, their algorithms say or do, or I, I don't have any idea how they do it, but they, they obviously suppress any information out there that is supportive of Trump. But I just believe that Republican primary voters, and I think to some degree independent voters, I don't think it's obviously as extreme as it is with Republican primary voters, but I think we're making a decision not between Nikki Haley and, and Donald Trump, but establishment normalcy. Some want that. I respect that. I don't, but I certainly respect that you may want to get back to some sort of establishment normalcy. I want a unique disruptor. I think this moment in time requires us to tear Washington apart. Wow, wow, man, did you really say Yeah, I said it. Don't apologize. I meant it. Every word of it. Is it radical? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a fairly radical thing to say. I believe it's time to dismantle Washington. Now, now, those who say, yeah, but I want normal. I want you to tell me what's normal about government in the last 20 years. I mean, that, that was kind of the, um, the explanation of why I'm for Trump. I mean, let, let's say that I'm right, Josh. Let's say there's these two competing candidates, and one is an embodiment of establishment normalcy, and the other is a unique disruptor. If the establishment normal candidate, Nikki Haley in this case, is going to kind of bring back back about normal to government, I mean, does that mean we're spending a trillion dollars we don't have a year? Does that mean we're going to decarbonize the economy? Does that mean we're going to incentivize the government to build cars people don't want? I mean, does that mean we're going to force people to take experimental medicine before they get on a plane or work a job? I mean, does that mean we're going to allow kids to have their genitalia mutilated without parental consent? I mean, is that, is that normal? Because that's where we are. I mean, that, that's what Washington supports. That's what the establishment normalcy is. So, so yes, I mean, if, I, if I've got to choose between that and radical disruption, unique candidate, that's a no-brainer to me. I mean, that's the easiest choice I will ever have to make in supporting one candidate or another. And I want to go back to the advertising and media for a second. I mean, it's just taboo for an advertiser to be in relation with a unique disruptor. I mean, how dare? Well, I mean, think if you're an advertiser and you're advertising on CNN and you're not advertising on talk radio because they're so controversial. CNN is very much supportive of the perceived narrative of conventional wisdom of the establishment norm that allows kids to mutilate themselves. That allows a trillion dollars to be spent every year that we don't have. There's nothing normal about that. You folks out there, not our listeners by and large, but the majority of Americans have been conditioned to conform. You've been conditioned to believe that Putin's bad and we're good. That Zelensky's trying to hold on and preserve democracy in Ukraine. None of that's true. Based on what? I mean, Zelensky is fighting on behalf of democracy in Eastern Europe. I mean, and some believe that. It's unfathomable to me that there are smart people, above average intelligence, that believe that. But conventional wisdom says, well, let me CNN and the Wall Street Journal said it. One's fairly conservative, one's liberal. I mean, who am I to challenge that narrative? The narrative is propaganda. That's the point I'm trying to make. I mean, if an advertiser wanted to advertise with the fairest product in all of the universe, you know, to me where it is, and I'm going to be kind of a homer here for a second. It's talk radio. I mean, the, the guy had a disagreeable opinion with me two seconds ago. How many times did I interrupt and call him crazy and cut him off? Area time. I'm not afraid to debate these issues. I'm not nervous about hearing another and alternative opinion. 
Pfizer doesn't want an opinion that is not supportive of their narrative to be heard. And they pay enormous amounts of money to make sure that opinion is not heard. Boeing has a lot of issues. Some networks don't cover it. Wonder why. Meet the Press, brought to you by Boeing. We'll take a break. Back in a few. The point is not what you believe and what your opinions are. The point I'm trying to make is, why do you believe what you believe? And why do you have these opinions? I have a lot of opinions. I express these opinions over the airwaves. I don't pull my opinions out of thin air. And when I do, I let you know. The opinion I have about Governor Haley has no substantiation whatsoever. I mean, I I just kind of woke up in the middle of the night and something said to me, this is going to be closer than most people believe it's going to be. I mean, but but I told you, I gave you fair warning. Uh, I prefaced my suggestion with the fact that I don't have anything to back that on. So, so Josh, the the point I'm trying to make is, and you'll benefit from this more than the Rev and I. Rev and I grew up in a time when we, when, we, when we heard something that the New York Times reported, we all of a sudden thought to ourselves, well, they got this huge building in New York City. You don't get that building in New York City by lying to people. I mean, there's got to be some substance there. There's got to be some reason that they're, you know, they're on this trail and they've, 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 they pitch this narrative to the American public. And all of a sudden, we get this decentralization of media. And Tucker Carlson is able to go sit down with Vladimir Putin and nobody in an editing room gets to splice it and dice it. Elon Musk says, hey, I mean, have at it. And it'll blow Twitter up. But I mean, there's no telling how many millions of views that will have. Well, Josh, you grew up with the luxury of not being forced to form an opinion based on information that was spoon-fed to you by these media outlets that we always knew were liberal, but we never believed they were propagandists. I mean, we knew, Rev knew that the New York Times had a liberal interpretation of whatever's happening. I mean, I knew that, but, but I grew up believing, I don't know, man, that Wall Street Journal, you don't, you don't get where they are by lying to people. And the Wall Street Journal aren't liars. But you still had a level of trust, even for CNN and NBC News and CBS News, but, but, because they were the news. But, but think of this, Rev, if you wake up every day with an agenda, and you do, and I wake up every day with an agenda, you don't believe they do? I mean, do you think they check their agenda at the door? I mean, Josh wakes Obviously up every not. day with an agenda. It's self-preservation. Self-preservation can. Self-preservation is rev. I mean, we're all that. I mean, nobody is altruistic and then self-preservationists. We're self-preservationists, and then we, we find some place in our heart to be altruistic and, and give and, and be kind and decent and fair. But the majority of our instinctive impulses are what? In our best interest. So why do we believe the New York Times would be different? If the New York Times has a, a $40 million a year contract with corporate American advertising dollars, why do you believe the New York Times would ever be fair in criticizing corporate America? I mean, if Pfizer spends a million dollars a day on CNN, why do you believe that CNN would ever say things contrary to the Pfizer narrative? But, but when, when the establishment's credibility is based on controlling the narrative, and along comes Rogan, and along comes Tucker, and along comes talk radio, and along comes these disruptive media outlets, and they can't control the narrative, and more and more Americans begin to question why they have these opinions. I asked a question this morning, and nobody's answered it yet. Where did you get your opinion 
of what the U.S. should do or not do in regards to U.S. and I mean Ukraine and Russia. I mean, that that would be so interesting to me. In, in a soundbite, you have a belief about Ukraine and Russia. Nearly everybody listening to my voice has landed somewhere. Why did you land there? Whose word did you take? Is, is it a congressman? Is it a senator? Is it a president? Is it a former president? Is it a media outlet? Is it a talk radio show host? Why do you have the opinion you have on something that very few of us have, have information on? How much information do you have on Ukraine and Russia? How much historical knowledge do you know about Eastern Europe and that part of the world? How much faith do you have in the American government? I mean, all that, all that comes into play, and now we're getting these opportunities, and Josh will grow up in the era and age of Tucker whispering in one ear and the Wall Street Journal whispering in the other. You and I grew up in an age where the Wall Street Journal whispered in one ear and CBS whispered in the other, and the narratives were pretty much the same. So we, I mean, you know, those guys, they know what they're talking about. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. I want to thank Pepsi Florence. I mean, we, we've got these 16-ounce Celsius's now, uh, Celsius's, um, <laughs> that have 270 grams of pro, uh, caffeine, but they, I mean, you water it down with the Aquafina or your life water, and it lasts for the balance. It's not a two Celsius morning anymore. It's 270 grams of caffeine, um, kind, of, kind of like an IV drip. <laughs> You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm, you've got I'm, getting four out. I'm getting 270 grams of caffeine in about four hours, and I'm getting my hydration. I'm getting my caffeine. I'm getting my enthusiastic energy to, you know, to do God's work over the radio, uh, try to convert some of you folks out there. Let me ask you a question before we go to the phone. Uh, well, let's go to the phone. Some folks have had, held on. I could do this and forget the callers <laughs> after 270 grams of caffeine and a, and a Celsius. But let's be respectful of our callers and go there. Yeah, Mike in Effingham has been holding on for a while. So good morning, Mike. It's your turn. Morning, Ken. I don't know if you like or don't like my calls. I don't call that often because sometimes I get emotionally involved. But I got four points for you here, and, and I'll keep them quick. I don't know First if I can off, handle all four now. I'm, 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 <laughs> you know, but but I'll get my pen. Let me get my pen handy so I can make notes here. All right, Mike. Yeah, floor's they'll, yours. They'll be quick. First off. People listen with their emotions and not not to get an understanding. Because I heard you say earlier, the border is not important. And that it's the other things that go along with it. And and that's where Trump and everybody else has us on this. We make that border we campaigning on that border and we're making that border important because that pulls at our heartstrings and that distracts us from something else, i.e. as you would say, the money to Ukraine. Oh, and to hit the answer on that, I, I don't form an opinion on Ukraine. I feel like we're only in Ukraine because there's something beneficial for us. I, I, I would, I would just as well back out of it. Um, and the second thing on that border is, I, the news break just said a million people crossed the border. There's cameras everywhere. Everybody's got a camera. Where is this video of these million people? I just want to see that. And and I wanted to call yesterday because the professor, the professor said something really. Real intelligent, also where we're not listening. He said Trump was loud with what he do, which takes us back to speak loud and carry a big stick. Nobody has looked at the Obama deportation numbers um, compared to Trump's deportation numbers, or compared to Biden's, which I'm sure Biden's is the lowest. But we we got to start, you know. If if we want to solve something, we got to understand it. I think Trump would have been a better. Um, 
House leader or Senate leader because he forces people to change. He, he forces people to to get out of what they're hiding behind. And if he was there, he could stay there as long as he wanted to stay there. But at president, he, he maybe can bully around, for lack of better terms, four more years when maybe his platform needs to be there eight more years or ten more years. And that's all I got. Thank you, Mike. That's a lot. Um, I want to make clear, I didn't say the border doesn't matter. I'm saying when Lankford went into that subcommittee, excuse me, went to that work session with Schumer and some of the others, he was McConnell's guy. And there's no way McConnell lets him go in there and negotiate border security without including Ukrainian funding. The border matters immensely. And I do believe there's a lot of visuals on Fox. I mean, they're the only network covering the show, this onslaught of humanity coming into our coming across our southern border, and we don't know who they are. We don't know what they're coming for. Um, I mean, I've, I've coined the phrase, it's an insult to Ellis Island. I mean, I stand by that. I don't want to deprive anybody from bettering themselves. And, and America has been a shining city on a hill, so to speak, but we've got to be lawful and orderly about the way we allow people to come into the country. I'm not anti-immigration. I am for lawful, orderly immigration. I'm for limited immigration. I do believe that America needs to establish a quota. And it's not a lot. I mean, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm not one of these guys who believes that everybody who wants to come here can come. I mean, everybody that wants to come here will have an opportunity to apply. And then we as Americans decide what number is appropriate and acceptable to allow into our, into our country. Um, when it comes to Trump's agenda, I still go back to I'm less interested. And this is so shallow and lame but I'm willing to say it. I'm less interested in Trump's agenda as much as I am the potential destabilization. I mean, I think you've got to destabilize before you can. There's no way to change an agenda. I mean, Washington has amassed so much power and influence. The only way to change an agenda is to disrupt the current one. I mean, you don't, you don't flip the page. This isn't a, a magazine where you go from one page to the next. I mean, this is going to be, but you are going to be required to tear 10 pages out of the magazine. And that's going to be very disruptive and very chaotic and very uncertain, very uncomfortable, to be honest with you. And that is a radical idea. I mean, that, that is a very radical notion to say, wow, all the things that have worked up until now, you're willing to put at risk to try and make things better in the future. Yes. Yes. I've convinced myself that an establishment normal candidate is no different than Biden. Josh and I were talking during the break. In all honesty, in all honesty, if Nikki Haley were to win, what do you think would fundamentally change about Washington than if Joe Biden won? Um, nothing. She, I mean, she's younger. They're, she's they're, more coherent. She's more coherent. Okay, fair enough. Yeah, but policy-wise, I mean, honestly— there would be slight changes. You might see some improvement on immigration, but ultimately nothing meaningful. It would nothing be, that it would be, be insider oriented. Exactly. I mean, she would take her marching orders from the same people that Chuck Schumer takes his marching orders. It's the establishment. It's the ruling class. It's the elites. It's the donor class. It's these people who have paid enormous amounts of money to be allowed to sway government one way or another. And And Josh is right. There would be some incremental differences in immigration, maybe taxation. Uh, you got a, you got a president, you got a Republican president appointing a Republican EPA director, transportation secretary. I mean, I would imagine they would be more fundamentally aligned with our worldview. 
But on the big issues, I'm mean, the trains keep running on time. And that's what I've tried to talk about this morning. The 300, I think the, the border bill is a classic example of how we focus on things that honestly don't mean much. If they pass the 370-page border security bill, it's got to be enforced. I mean, what makes you believe if, if there are 112 laws on the books now pertaining to border security and Biden's not enforcing any of the border security bill and Mayorkas is an open border zealot, then why? Why do you believe another 370 pages of bill and legislation and statutes are going to change his mind? I mean, there's enough laws on the books now to enforce border security. The Democrats choose to not enforce. So what do we need? More laws to not enforce? This is a money grab. This is a foreign policy. And this is to make Biden look like, you know, the Republicans are the, I mean, they're the reason we can't get this done. It's the, it's the, it's the oldest trick in the book. And, and here's the sad part of this. A lot of you will fall for it. I mean, a lot of the Americans will believe now, independents watching Seinfeld, those Republicans won't pass a legitimate, um, here's what I'll tell you. Jake Tapper loves the bill. Joe Biden loves the bill. Chuck Schumer loves the bill. There's no way you can love it. There's no way you can love it. Jake Tapper did not interview a Republican yesterday. He interrogated one. I mean, this is the most, this is the most conservative border bill in the last 50 years. We're not enforcing the, board, the bills on the books. There are enough laws on the books now to secure our border. Our president chooses not to. And our president appointed an open border zealot to be in charge. That's who they are. That's what they're about. It's, it's John Lennon's Imagine. Imagine there are no heaven, no hell, no countries with borders. There are no sovereignty. There is no assimilation. There is no national language, national ID. Now, I mean, that, that's who the Democrat, I didn't say the liberal. I mean, the bleeding heart liberal would be different than the radical leftist. My orcas is a radical leftist. Biden is a figurehead. The White House is run by radical leftists. It's not run by liberals. Please understand there's a difference. Liberals are genuinely concerned about the plight of humanity, and they believe government is equipped to kind of address some of those inequities and inequalities and yeah, I mean, I, I do. I believe that the bleeding heart liberal, by definition, believes that government should level the playing field. The radical leftist is 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 agenda driven. Can we fundamentally transform America? Barack Obama is not a liberal; he is a radical leftist. There's a difference. Let's go to the phone. David in the PD. Good morning. You are on. Hey, good morning. I was thinking about Toby Keith, uh, Ken. Uh, I used to like that song. I ain't as good as I once was, but I'm good once as I ever was. That's that's good when you get to be our age, man. And I think uh, Toby died at 62. I think that was the number. Correct. Yeah. So here's what's sad about our world. And I call it the retirement industry economy that we live in. This is part of what's going on down at the coast. But there's a lot of people, I call them equip chasers, whatever, they like to be 62 years old to enjoy life. I never have to understand that, but if you look at a lot of things that goes on with the pharmaceutical industry, the 401K industries, the pension industries, your Black Rocks, your Pfizer's, and this and that, 
people have a mindset to, hey, I'll wait till I'm 62 uh, until I enjoy life. And that's why they grudge to life in these northern states. And I'm going to try to defend them real quick. Bruce is asking why they act like that. You know, there's uh, there's seven counties across from the Hudson River from New York City. There's five million people living in these counties, and they're roughly the size of Orange, Georgetown, and Marion County. So imagine the whole state living in those three counties, and then you add to New York City. I think there's about eight million people that live there, and they're about the size of Lee County. So that adds up to about 13 million people, which would be the fifth most populous state in the whole uh, country, living in Ori, Georgetown, Marion, and Lee counties. I mean, these people, no wonder they want to move to the cookie-cutter subdivisions where you cut your grass with a Swiss Army knife and you hear your neighbors sneeze. I mean, that's, that's relatively quiet to them. But think about all the wealth that these people control, and y'all have a good day. Thank you, David. Appreciate that. 843-661-0937 is our number. So, Josh, give me your commentary. I'd be interested in this because I think we framed it fairly well. You've got establishment normalcy. You've got unique disruptor. What does establishment normalcy mean to you? So what that means is I think that when we say the establishment, it's more than just the Democrats and the Republicans. I think that whatever the establishment is, is comfortable with this sort of middle ground, this not all the way far leftist and not all the way far right. So so they have interest in both sides. That's why you see do, uh, people making donations to liberal liberals and conservatives. The Jamie Dimons of the world. Right. So you can have Republicans run on no no open immigration, low taxes, whatever, and you can have uh, Democrats running on the opposite. And ultimately, so these people run on these extremes, they get in, and then they do none of it. And And I think that those people tend to lean more liberal, which is why you're seeing all this, uh, you know, liberalization of certain things like with the economy and and immigration. But the, the, the establishment allows for a little bit of pushback, but not enough in any meaningful way. Does okay. that kind of make sense? Sure does. Unique disruptor. What do you hear when I say that? Someone who is outside of the establishment um, kind of throwing a wrench in their machine, which I think. Peeing in their cornflakes. Precisely. Kind of. I mean, they, they, they set the table, they serve the meal, and a guy comes along and says, I don't want the table set like that. I don't want the meal served that way. And they're going like, well, I mean, who are you to tell us not do I'm serve the meal that way and not to set the table that way? Can you name anybody who you would say is a unique disruptor that's not Donald Trump? Probably Vivek. Right. Yeah, Ramaswamy would be a unique disruptor. I think J.D. Vance. The word unique doesn't mean, you know, loud and bombastic. I mean, I think J.D. Vance is a unique disruptor. He's more cerebral. I mean, he's less provocative. But and I, I guess mean, some evidence to that fact is when they cut his microphone off sure. on an interview on ABC well, News. He, he makes, he articulates disruption, but he doesn't yell and scream and put on a, a show. I mean, what kind of news interview show cuts off a microphone during a live interview because they don't like what you're saying? Well, I mean, one just bought and paid for I mean, one that's owned by corporate sponsors and whatnot. Here's what I'll argue, guys, and we got to take a break, but, but I want you to think about this. The, John Mellencamp, because when Josh is talking, I'm thinking about John Mellencamp. 
and I, I can relate. I fought authority, and authority always wins. Is America to the point where authority needs to lose more than it wins? I mean, that we, we call ourselves a lawful and orderly society, right? I mean, we're a nation of laws, and lawmakers make laws, and we got to abide by the laws and obey the laws. Are we a better nation when authority loses more than it wins? I mean, if you go back to the founding of our nation, see, that's what when people say this radical, this craziness concerns me, it scares me, it freaks me out. I mean, this would have been similar to when we rebelled against the king. I mean, when a group of radicals, I mean, how do you not call Jefferson a radical? How's Adams and Franklin and Madison, how are they not radicals? They're as radical as the world has ever seen. But that was the premise of America. That was the foundational principle of America. We're not going to do as we're told. We're going to stand up to authority. We're not going to kowtow and bow down and, and, and let the authorities get their way every single time. Taxation without representation. The Boston TIA is talking about those founders now. You know, those radio show hoods. They'll bring up Franklin and Jefferson, and before you know it, he'll start quoting the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Damn it, it's who we are. Can you give an example of authority not winning or what that would look like? Trump winning in 16. I mean, Trump winning in 16 was the establishment not getting its way, the authority not winning. But look at what they did. I mean, look how much energy they expended between 16 and 20 to make sure he didn't win again. <laughs> I'll ask this question. Let's take a break, Josh. But before we take this break, because this is the last hour, nobody listening anyway, how <laughs> much of a statistical anomaly is it for one candidate to win by 12 to 15 points, all the votes cast in person with a witness that same candidate who won in-person voting by 11 or 12 or 13 points loses the ballots that nobody saw cast by 13, 14, 15 points. How big a statistical anomaly is that? Once again, one candidate, didn't call his name, in 2020 won the in-person voting by 11 or 12 points, lost the mail-in voting by 11 or 12 points. Statistically, you got to believe that everybody who decided to go to the poll voted for Donald Trump. Everybody who decided to stay home voted for Joe Biden. Hmm. That is as statistically, I mean, you're talking about coincidence. I mean, that that's that's like saying the universe just happened. <laughs> you know, two comets ran together at 9 million miles an hour, and out of that came, you know, humanity. You buy wow. a lottery ticket. Well, I mean, just think of the odds of that happening. Right. Or not. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937, our number. Let's go to the phone. Someone's there. Barry in Chirag. Morning. Hey, good morning, guys. First of all, I'll never vote for Nikki Haley. To anybody out there ever questioning if Barry Driggers from Chiral will vote for Nikki Haley, that will never happen. I'm not voting for another neocon. I'm not voting for Tim Scott. I'm not voting for Lindsey Graham. Everybody wants to put us in wars. None of those three go to war. One sends her husband to war every time she's up for election. That's kind of odd. But, uh, you know, that's my rant for today. Hey, Ken, it just came out. The Senate's trying to jam through a Ukraine and Israel bill today, a clean bill. That's their plan B for funding of Ukraine and Israel. So we need to call our loser, Lindsey Graham, 202-225-3121 and let him know. He will not answer, by the way, that his office will not answer. 
just leave him a great message and have a blessed day. Y'all have a good one. Thank you, Barry. Well, I can tell you this. The, 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 the Ukraine funding doesn't have the votes. I mean, the Israeli funding, I think there could be some arms twisted. I think there could be some agreement uh, amongst the two. You're talking about compromise and bipartisanship. Um, I mean, you know, there, there's bipartisanship spending money they don't have. And I think they'd send some of that money to Israel. I mean, from what I'm hearing, from my sources on Capitol Hill, I sound like a reporter now, um, and I got a couple I talk to periodically and a couple I talk to fairly regularly. But but I'm hearing there is probably enough support for some Israeli aid package. There, it's a no-go in the House on, uh, on Ukraine. I mean, you, you, the Senate, for whatever reason, and it's McConnell's leadership, um, I mean, they, they're probably, you got the Romneys of the world, Lindsey, has said, you know, we got to send more money to Ukraine, but that doesn't fly in the House. Is it the Freedom Caucus? I don't have any idea. Is it the um, the Trump crowd? I, I would imagine to some degree, you know, kind of the anti-intervention, anti-globalist mindset of the uh, of the Trump voter and the Trump member of Congress. I mean, they, they kind of just, I, I, I don't understand it. I mean, and, and I'm, I'm kind of infatuated with the way we think through some of these things and, I mean, if you're an American citizen who believes we should send more money to Ukraine, what are you basing that on? I mean, I, I'll answer why I don't think we should, because I don't know where the money's going. I mean, I don't know what the money's going for. I don't trust Zelensky. I don't trust the Ukrainian government. I don't know enough about it to continue to send American dollars, taxpayer dollars there. Remember when Rand Paul asked for an accounting of the money, and he asked for a vote on the floor of the Senate, and they turned it down? I, well, mean, I mean, that, to me was one of those moments where I'm like, really? So, so if you're, Why? If, Why would they do that? But if you're an American voter, and you're certainly entitled to this, and you don't owe me an explanation, I'd just be very interested. If you are a voter who believes we should send more money to Ukraine, what are you basing that on? Is it something you read in the New York Times? Something you saw on CBS News? Uh, is, it, is it your animus toward the former Soviet Union? Is it, you know, your loyalty to Ronald Reagan? I mean, th- th- there's a lot of reasons i just love for somebody to call in and explain to me, and there's probably valid reasons why you believe it's in our best interest to continue to send money to Ukraine when a member of the Senate requested an accounting and they didn't uh, have the vote. I mean, that just kind of interesting to me. So a senator, I mean, whether you want to send money to Ukraine or not, let's say that's a legitimate debate. I'm a hard no, but there are those who disagree with me. I respect that. But how can you disagree with wanting an accounting. I mean, if wonder wonder if this would fly, Rev. Wonder if the amendment was um, or excuse me, the the statute, the ordinance was adopted to send money to Ukraine, and Rand Paul amended and said, um, with daily accounting, weekly accounting, you know, uh, bi-weekly account, bi-monthly accounting. Wonder how many members of Congress would sign up for that. I don't think many would because they know they don't know where the money's going. Right. I mean, they, you know, it, it's, it's wild to me. And I think Tucker said it. It's the worst kind of propaganda because it includes killing 20-year-old men from Ukraine and Russia. I mean, it's the, I mean, imagine that, guys. Imagine sending dollars to a foreign land to assist an ally and, and, and combat an adversary and ask for an accounting on where this money's going. What exactly is Ukraine doing with these billions of dollars, tax dollars that Americans are sending to Ukraine, and Congress is arrogant enough to say to the American taxpayer, you don't deserve an explanation. I mean, we're doing this because we believe it's the right thing to do, and we don't owe you an explanation. We're not going to give you an honest accounting 
of where that money goes and why. How do you, I mean, how do you get there from where I am? I'm a hard no on Ukraine. Some of you are not. I respect that. Help me understand how you got where you are. And if it's your belief that he's trying to put the band back together and you got to keep an eye on Putin because before you know it, he'll be in Poland and he'll be marching across Europe. I mean, if that's what you believe, say that's what you believe. But where do you get that from? I mean, the history of the Soviet Union? I mean, there's some that believe. I got two texts this morning that are very, I mean, they're, they're informed about these issues. They don't believe Russia is a communist country. I mean, they believe the former Soviet Union was, but they don't believe Russia today would, would categorically qualify as a communist nation. You know what my answer is to that? I don't know. I don't know. But am I to be supportive of blindly sending money to Ukraine and, and you know, Zelensky because I grew up in the Cold War era and Russia was bad, the former Soviet Union was the geopolitical adversary of my generation and my life? Really? I mean, to me, that's, that's lame. That's lacking intellectual curiosity. Let's go to the phone. Jay in Darlington. Good morning. You're on the air. Yeah. How you doing, guys, this morning? Hey, Jay. Um, just a, I, I agree with uh, much of what you're saying on Ukraine. I think it's a, personally, I think it's a European issue. I think the Europeans need to step up and handle the problem. Uh, it's not an American problem. But I called for a more general comment. Um, I just would like to point out to all Republicans that the days of negotiating uh, with the Democrats are done. These these left tards uh, are so adamant in their position that there is no negotiating. So we got to line up. We got to we got to kick some butts, and we we're not going to get anything done by trying to talk with these people. We have to defeat their their ideology. We have to stick together. The vote last night, uh, four guys, def- uh, you know, uh, can't can't vote uh, to impeach Mayorka. Uh, Scalise can't make it to the, the chamber, supposedly because of health reasons, yet the Democrats wheel in a guy on a gurney in scrubs to vote. I mean, we, we got to get our stuff together or the Republican Party is, is done, as far as I'm concerned. And to the fella from Sheraw with Nikki Haley, I'm all with you. And there's no way, it's not a snowball's chance, and you know what, I'm voting for Haley. Thanks, guys. Thank you. The, the curse to Haley's campaign is when it became her and Trump. I mean, it's a catch-22. It's damned if you do and damned if you don't. I mean, Nikki had to figure out a way to be the alternate to Trump or the alternative to Trump. I mean, and she did that. Give her credit. I mean, she's standing and he's standing, and that's the, that's the last two left. But now she's got to go after Trump. And when you go after Trump and you do it in schneid ways like Saturday Night Live, you insult the Trump base. And I've always said this. The Trump voter is not a Republican voter. They are a Trump voter. And when you insult their guy, you're insulting them. And I think for Haley to play games that liberals play by going on Saturday Night Live and participating in a parody skit, I mean, that's insulting to the Trump. I get it why she did it. I mean, she, that's the only way she has a chance to beat Trump is to create contrast. But the other side of that coin, the Trump crowd will stay home. And there are more Trump voters than there are historic legacy Republican voters. If you listen to Bill Crystal. And you listen to, uh, I'm trying to think, uh, Mitt Romney. I mean, they, they, you know, they're morally and intellectually superior. I mean, everything that comes out of Bill Crystal's mouth or everything that comes out of Mitt Romney's mouth, I mean, there's a moral intellectual superiority that goes along with it. You'll lose elections. You'll lose election after election after election. And when it comes to 
voting on bills? Here's a, here's a fair question. What sort of, because the word is um, Rona McDaniel will resign after the South Carolina primary. I mean, she's just not real good at her job. It's obvious now she's not real good at her job, but the establishment could blame Trump. The reason we're having bad cycles is, is you know, this controversial figure, this radical Donald Trump. The reality is the RNC is horribly run. I mean, it's not well run. It's not aggressive. Um, somebody used the analogy last week. It's like Lucy and, and Charlie Brown. And the Republicans, you know, believe that, wow, man, they're not going to move that ball this time. Um, but they're going to let me kick it this time. They never do. They never will. Accept that as reality and go into the battle of ideas and, and policy that way. I mean, just don't give an inch. Never give an inch. If you believe in something, unite around it and, and go after it. But, but now, in fairness, this is where we're unrealistic. I've said 100,000 times, uh, 90,000 times, that it's not going to be a, an overnight event. I mean, it's not going to happen as fast as we'd like it to. There are going to be periods of times where you're, where you're for it with winning. There's going to be discouragement that comes along with uh, losing. There's going to be good election cycles and bad election cycles. But when you try to transition from establishment normalcy to unique disruption, it's just there's a lot of growing pains there. I mean, there's a lot of wins and losses. It's not going to be win after win. It's not like the establishment says, wow, I mean, there's a powerful political force over here, and it's motivated by this nationalist populism. We just better get out of the way. No, I mean, they're going to stand their ground. They're going to fight you with everything they have because they have no other choice but to stand and fight. Their existence requires them to stand and fight. Take a break. Back in a few. 843-661-0937 is our number. Um, good one, Josh. Yeah. Good one. Hilarious. I'm fighting the good fight over here, and you want to insult someone. <laughs> that really inspires me to be better, inspires me to want to work harder. Let's go to the phone. <laughs> Charles in Florence. Good morning, Charles. Hey, good morning, guys. Ken, I will not insult you today then by, you know, reminding you that Kobe was better than um, Larry Bird. So we'll leave that Kobe one was not today. better than Larry Bird. Ooh. Bird Ooh. played in the days of bloody noses, the Pistons. Kobe played in the day, if you touch somebody, he probably shot six million free throws in his career. Okay, I'll go along with you today. Are you, both, are you both forgetting about Michael Jordan? I mean, what are we talking about here? What are we talking about, Kobe and Larry? Okay, just checking. Yeah. Um, now, the reason, you know, my call was simply a quick question about uh, Ukraine, because I am torn. Um, back when I was a much younger man and in college, I, my college president was from Ukraine and his family, you know. and um, So I have some personal connection to him. So my question is, when they say they want to give them $60 billion or $20 billion, I'm curious how much money of that is actual financial aid or just weaponry. Because if I'm not mistaken, Israel needs weapons, but they're willing to pay for them. And would, would not Ukraine could be the same situation where we militarily aid them, but you know, not send them buckets of cash? But and see, Charles, nobody last, will answer oh, that question. I mean, that's what Rand Paul was asking. Are we sending pallets of money? Are we wire transferring funds? Are we buying planes from the Italians, you know, to give to Ukraine? Where And, and that, that's when the Senate said, you know, stop asking questions. We're not voting on, on accounting. I mean, that's Paul, 
Paul is a member of Congress, and he says he has no idea how much cash we're sending, how much weaponry we're sending, what sort of accounting or clerical work is done. Right, and because I think they could easily get it passed, but, you know, they don't do anything easy. So I'll let you guys talk. Appreciate Thank you. That. Appreciate it. Well, I mean, and, and, and I'm saying this, guys. I want to be intellectually consistent. I do, and I admitted it, and Josh gave me a little credit. He never does, but he did on this. I'll admit that my biblical worldview forces me to look at Israel different. It doesn't make me any less of a non-interventionist. I don't think I'm an isolationist. I mean, I think it's fair to say, yeah, he might be. Uh, I mean, I'll accept that as criticism, and I'll accept that as legitimate criticism. I am a non-interventionist. I mean, there is no doubt in my mind, and I go back to Washington's farewell address. I mean, Washington warned of us being, uh, and I'll tell you, it, Washington basically said, look, we got enough to say grace over. I mean, there's enough, it's complicated enough managing this big country. Let's not worry about our status in the world. And, and well, you know, I, I, I'll agree that there's a place for NATO. I mean, I don't think it's a, a priority, but I'll agree that there needs to be consistent communication between one government and another. I mean, governments to celebrate freedom, liberty, and human rights. I mean, I'll, I'll agree there needs to be some standard correspondence that we have with one another, but I don't know that we need to be married at the hip. I mean, I think it's healthy for me to know kind of what's on Germany's mind, what's on Italy's mind, what's on France's mind, but I'm not beholden to them. I mean, they have a right to address their sovereignty as they see fit. We have a right to address our sovereignty as we see fit. And here's where I stand on the world's a big, bad, dangerous place. There's nothing we can do about that. I mean, there's nothing we can do about the world being a big, bad, dangerous place. We need to be aware that the world's a big, bad, dangerous place, but we can't stop the world from being a big, bad, dangerous place. That's been proven how many times? How many human lives have to be lost? How many taxpayer dollars had to be spent in the Middle East before we accept that's just a different place? I mean, every president believes he has the Midas touch, and he believes he's the chosen one, literally and figuratively. He can go there and get the Palestinians and Jews and, and Arabs and I think Iraq, but he can get all these people to, hey, because I'm from America, and we live in the post-Second World War century, and you don't mess with us. Or we'll teach you a lesson the heart. You can either do this our way, or it's a little bit like the bouncer. Hey, you want to leave now, or you want me to throw you out. I mean, that's kind of the mindset we've had, and that's imperialistic, guys. I mean, I don't think we deserve that. And I go back to being critical of the U.S. I am critical of my government, and I love America. And I don't think they're mutually exclusive of one another. So Some of these, these fake patriots that say, how dare you criticize America? I think the most responsible thing you can do as a patriotic American is to be critical of your country in reasonable terms, in reasonable ways. And I think the American empire, to some degree, has abused its privilege. And I think the world may be a more dangerous place at times as a result of imperialistic America. Let's go to the phone. Linda in Sumter, listening to WTXY. Good morning. Good morning. I think everyone's going to be surprised when Tucker gets through with Russia because if anyone will go back and look at when the Olympics was held in Russia, Billie Jean King said she was going to go there, and then she got informed of how they treated gays, and I didn't even know she was gay at the time. They're very, they're more Christian toward their children than most other countries. Thank you. Thank you. Not the most tolerant bunch in the world. <laughs> And, and I, 
I mean, it's easy for me to say because I'm way over here and they're way over there. But, I mean, if you listen to some of the attributes of Putin, and I'm forming an opinion from afar, I don't know that tolerant and open-minded would come to mind. Fair enough, Josh? I mean, That's he is fair. what he is. I mean, he, he's a, he's a, I mean, you call him a brute and a bully and a dictator Former and KGB. a killer. Uh, I asked Josh this morning before the show started, do you believe the Russian government has killed more or less people than the American government? How uh, dare you say that? How dare you say that? <laughs> I mean, do you not know Toby Keith sang this song about the love of America? I love America. I don't trust our government. I think that's a very healthy place to be. I love America today more than I've ever loved America in my life. I am proud to be an American. I won the ovarian lottery when I was born here. But but I don't trust our government. I don't think it's trustworthy. I'm sorry. I just they've proven to be very inconsistent and untrustworthy and the things they say never come to fruition. They just don't. The oil revenue will pay for the Gulf War. The the Middle East is a fledgling democracy in waiting. They will embrace us with open arms once they understand, once they get a taste of freedoms and liberties. Well, I mean, you know, the Arab Spring, okay, had some of that. It's still a complicated place. And there's not enough money in America to fix the complications of that part of the world. I mean, how many 21-year-olds will lose their lives trying to export democracy and the American way to places that may not want the American way? I mean, I, you know, I would be so interested and what Tucker talks to Putin about. Once again, the media interviews Zelensky, and it's a, I mean, it's a cheering section because they've been told to hate Russia. They've been told to exclaim this, one of the most pivotal geopolitical moments in our lifetime, and we better be aware. Now, now it may be. I could be dead wrong, but I'm not buying it because they sell these excursions about once every so often. And I believe the reason, I mean, I'm as cynical enough to believe this. You lax the restrictions on Iran, some of the sanctions on Iran. When Biden got elected, he laxed some of those restrictions. He gave Iran more cash. I mean, they got a, they got a better cash flow. If Iran was a business, it's in a better cash flow position with Biden than it was with Trump. That cash flow empowers Iran. Empowerment causes action. The next thing you know, Americans are killed by Iranian proxies on the Jordanian-Syrian border. And America has to respond. Respond with what? Military force. Hmm. So you're saying there's a circle here? I mean, you're saying they come full circle? I think you're a moron not to put that on the table. Can I prove it? No. It's my opinion that there's a reason to be very cynical about the actions of your federal government. Enjoy your day on that high note. We'll talk. <laughs> Great. We'll talk, we'll talk tomorrow.